Welcome to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. Today we have crime comics writer extraordinaire Chuck Dixon. He's been in the comic industry for the past close to 30 to 40 years, since the mid-80s. Chuck, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. We, what we like to do is we like to go through your career. We're going to start in the beginning. Jim is going to start off with your early days. So, Jim, take it away. I know you were born in 1954. Where? Philadelphia. Okay. And did you grow up in Philadelphia? Philadelphia and close by suburbs. Okay. And were you a comic book reader? Oh, yeah. Comics were everywhere when I was a kid. And I was an avid comics reader. I guess collector. I had a huge pile in the basement. Were you an early reader in general? Yeah. yeah. It's mostly, a common denominator, we find. Mostly with the help of comic. Like most comic creators, or like a lot of comic creators, I was sick a lot as a kid. <laughs> and I missed most of first grade. I was only in first grade for like 30 days. They allowed me to pass because I did so well with reading. Your glasses, so you're nearsighted, right? You can read up oh, close yeah. without your glasses. Yeah. I think that's another, that's another common denominator. Jim, because Jim's like that too. And I was like that before LASIK and all that. So I was prescribed eyeglasses. I was like seven. You know, yeah. I read the comics right up to my face, which I guess <laughs> immersed me in them further. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Me too. That's almost exactly what my experience was. So I, what, I remember actually see? being startled by a Thor story by the final panel on a page because I didn't see it coming because I was holding the page so close to my face. <laughs> <laughs> So what were you reading? Which books? Which lines? I loved Marvel's uh, pre-superhero monsters. And so I grooved right into the Marvel age. But, you know, I was reading Superman, Batman, Sergeant Rock, that kind of stuff. And then um, Fox and Crow. I loved Fox and Crow. Then I got into the Marvels. But, you know, as you guys, as comic book historians know, Marvels were hard to find. You really had to hunt for them. Yeah, the distribution wasn't as good as DC. Well, it was distributed by DC. I think that was the problem. <laughs> That's part of it, yeah. <laughs> now, did, did you later on go back and look at earlier comics, EC, for example, or the Golden Age stuff, or did you kind of just start with the silver and go forward from there? Yeah, I kind of started with what was available, and um, my sister worked at a hoagie shop. <laughs> I was from Philly. Everybody worked at a hoagie shop at some point. And the owner's son had a huge collection, and he was a few years older than me. And he would let me borrow literally shopping bags filled with comics. So I got to see a lot of like mid to late 50s stuff that had, you know appeared before I got interested. And then when I started going to conventions, like late 60s, you got introduced to Golden Age and the EC stuff there. So talk a little bit about conventions and things. Were you involved in fanzines? I was part of a fanzine group from Chicago because there wasn't one in Philly. I heard about these guys through the Comics Buyer's Guide, and they were looking for basically comic stories to print. So I wrote and drew my own stories for a fanzine called uh, Chronicle and another one called FBP. And uh, I got to know those guys, you know, like through the mail, basically. I only met them a few times. So a couple of times they came to New York. I met them there. So are there any comic book writers or artists that, that we would know that you established really early relationships with? Not really. I mean, not until John Byrne's first published work was in a fanzine I worked on. But by the time I met John, he was already working at Marvel. And he was so busy that he would literally, when he went to comic book conventions, he would be working on pages. 
at the convention. Because oh. I remember when I met him, I first time he was working on an Iron Fist story. I don't think he looked up once while we were talking. Uh-huh. <laughs> and when you were going to the conventions, did you meet uh, people that were were heroes of yours? Well, you listened to Alex Toth. I read an interview where you, you talked about that. Toth gave a, a keynote address at the first convention I went to and basically excoriated the whole comic book industry. The interesting thing is that most of the audience for that were comic pros. Uh, I mean, I sat next to Al Williamson. I didn't know who he was until Alex <laughs> introduced them from the stage. In the early cons, you rub shoulders with the pros more. You know, I got to meet Neil Adams, Gil Kane, Gray Morrow, you know, guys like that. And they were just, just kind of hanging out. In your work, since you started doing comics, you've certainly done superheroes because you did Batman. But you haven't done a tremendous amount of super superheroes, the ones with powers and the the cosmic kind of books. You tend to locate in Gotham City or in in that kind of thing, except for maybe CrossGen, you you were off-planet. So my question is, was that true when you were a reader? Did you gravitate toward things like Daredevil or or things that were more crime-focused than the Marvel cosmic kinds of things? The strange thing is, I mean, Kirby was a given because Kirby was there every month with the cosmic stuff. Yeah. So you really didn't think about, am I a Kirby fan? You just read it because it was always there. You know, yeah. looking back, I realized, my God, that stuff was amazing. But at the time, it was just, they set the standard so high, Kirby set the standard so high for cosmic stuff that you just sort of expected it to be wild. But, you know, I did gravitate more towards Batman, more towards Spider-Man. And as I said, Sergeant Rock, I remember when the, comic magazine his name is savage came out i was just thrilled to death because it was oh. like a straight up action thing with no superheroes in it mm-hmm. you like that gil kane story a lot then when you when you first read it oh yeah it blew me away i mean it yeah. was great back in those days because you you literally went to the newsstand not knowing what you were going to see i mean today we know everything that's coming out months ahead of time but True. you know new characters whole new companies would <laughs> would pop up that yeah. you'd never seen before it was it was a cool time that's true now, you've mentioned war titles, but you haven't mentioned Westerns. And the reason I ask is because some of my favorite things you've done were like that Robin Annual that's a Western and some of the other. And you seem to have a real affinity for spaghetti Westerns, especially. And I know Evangeline, the very first couple of issues were basically a spaghetti Western yeah. in style. So were you interested in Westerns and Western comics, like Jonah Hex and that that kind of stuff? Marvel stuff is, is, you know. You know, growing up, Western comics were kind of tame. Looking back now, I, I have a huge collection of Dell Westerns. I basically grew to appreciate them as an adult more than as a kid. You know, I read them, but I, they didn't make any impression. Jonah Hex, yeah, big, the whole weird Western thing with El Diablo and all the rest. They made a big impression on me. I really liked them because they were closer to the movies that I liked. Right, right. Good. I was interested in that. So now you're you're graduating high school, you're still into comics and fandom and things. What do you do next? I drew a lot of comics because I thought, well, I didn't have an artist, but I, I just wanted to be part of this medium. I realized early on that I was not the next Gil Kane or Steve Ditko. But you know, I still drew them because there was no one else to draw them for right. me. You know, I drew hundreds and hundreds of comic book pages, which I think helps me as a writer to understand what artists go through. Oh, but sure. mostly, you know, I didn't go to college. I just drifted from one dead-end job to another. You know, drove an ice cream truck. I, I set pins in a bowling alley. That's how old the bowling alley was. 
they didn't have an automatic pin setter. You know, I worked as a security guard, a janitor. I did advertising storyboards for a while as a freelancer. Oh, cool. I worked in children's books for a while as a freelancer. Uh, but all the time going up to New York, trying to get interviews. And it was tough because the Marvel wouldn't see you at all. You could not get past the receptionist. DC would have, you could go on Wednesdays and just before lunch, they'd have a bunch of freelancers in to basically tell us that we were never going to get work there. <laughs> what was this? The, this is the early 80s you're talking about? Like no, this is the 70s. Late 70s. 70s. Yeah, like the DC implosion. I, I was going up after the DC implosion. Oh, you know, I see. They had laid off people, so they weren't yeah. looking for new people. As a PR thing, they wanted to you know, still talk to wannabes. They didn't want to chase you away from the comics, but they would have Jack C. Harris and Bob Rosakis would sit in a conference room with us and just crush our dreams. <laughs> it was you an enviable job. It's like a, the doctor who has to tell the patient that they're dying. <laughs> yes, yes. Now, before you actually started working in comics as a professional, you married an artist, correct? And that was Judith Hunt? Yeah. Okay. When did y'all get married? I don't remember the year. Sometime in the 70s, late 70s. <laughs> okay. And and about how long were y'all married? Your Honor, we were married for four or five years. Uh, cool. Okay. And you have a son together? Yeah. Did the two of you put together a package for Evangeline that, that was how you got your first uh, actual paid assignment? It was something that had been kicking around in my mind for a while, and uh, we presented it at a couple of companies. And then this company, uh, Kamiko, popped up in Norristown, Pennsylvania, which wasn't that far from where I was living at the time. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, okay. So I was able to actually drive in. You know, yeah, the location, yeah. Them. Yeah. And they were you know, a bunch of young guys, a bunch of young upstarts, you know, really not ready for prime time. And, and here we were laying on them uh, completely realized, you know, professionally presented comic book. And, you know, they went for it. That's awesome. Because, you know, we had like Joe Staten on who got through into comics through Charlton. It sounds like later on, Charlton's not doing that stuff. But you, you're right by Kamiko. And that right. was like kind of how you got in. That's awesome. There, there needs to be something like that in comics, some outfit like that now. But that's great that they had that then. Yeah, yeah, and they weren't at all corporate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's you, all, that's you just great. knocked on the door, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Give us a couple sentence summation of what Evangeline is. It's a fascinating concept. Well, it's a futuristic story, a science fiction story, you know, space opera, planet hopping thing. It features Evangeline, who is a, a nun with the church, and she's sort of a spy for the Vatican. I read a series of paperbacks called The Inquisitor, that were written under a pseudonym by Martin Cruz Smith, and they were about basically a James Bond who works for the Vatican. And he has a um, sort of dispensation to kill, as long as he does penance afterwards. I mean, it was a uh, great series. Yeah. It's a great series. It really, it's in that men's adventure paperback genre, but to me, it's like literature. Each novel was really terrific. Anyone wants to try to find them. And so that was a big influence. And then I just sort of transplanted it to space because that was more saleable to comics. Now, did the two of you co-write it, or did you write it and she drew it, or painted it? Yeah, I, I wrote it. She drew it. I, and sometimes I provided layouts. Oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious, because then what happens with it, because I know two issues come out, and then, at least according to Wikipedia, there's a ownership dispute or something yeah. that develops. Can you tell us about that? 
Well, they claimed it was work for hire and nothing in our contract said that. Although in the contract, it wasn't really spelled out. So we had to go to arbitration and uh, we made our case and we won. Good. We won ownership. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's Uh, great. Kamiko was pretty bent out of shape about it, but it's like, you know, this is early on in the creator owned game and they didn't seem to get it. They just seemed to think that they took the risk in publishing it and they were rewarded with sales. So, you know, the big proponent of owning stuff still am. Yeah, that's great. Right out of the gate, the very first thing that you get published, you end up in arbitration and have to get lawyers over it? No, we didn't get lawyers. We just presented the case ourselves. It was in front of arbitration. It was just sitting in a conference room. Oh, that's great. They made their case. We made ours. And, you know, the arbitrator went with us. And there was two issues in a story in, in Primer. Is that right? So three stories all together? Right. And they get packaged by Lodestone? I, yeah, I don't remember. Some guy approached us. I don't know who he was and offered to put them together in like one bumper edition. And you go to first a few years later and pitch it as a new series. Is that what happens? Yes. And yeah. you're still married at that point? No. Oh. No. She still worked on the series for the first couple of issues, right? Right. Right. Oh, that's was, good. Was that difficult? working? Yes. Yes, it was, because I wanted to go to Eclipse where we would have remained creator-owned and then first offered almost exactly the same deal, but no creator ownership. But, you know, we were going through the whole divorce thing, and I just sort of gave in. I just didn't want to have any more discussions about it. So we went with first, so we lost all rights to it. You know, it's it's tangled up with, you know, about a, a bajillion lawyers that ended up owning everything at first. So to this day, you don't have ownership of it? No. Oh, I see. There's a a lot of those first properties are in question. And Evangeline is one of them. Just sort of nothing will ever get done. I mean, it's like so many times movie producers have been interested in, in doing it for, you know, a movie or television. And there are so many people that want money from it that it's not worth doing because everybody wants to be paid. Staten actually said he got partial rights to E-Man, but it's still partially also owned by someone from First as well. So I remember that came up. Yeah, that was yeah, well, well, Mike Barron got everything back from them. Like Badger and Nexus and those things? Yeah, yeah. They, they don't own them. Yeah. All right. I read somewhere that there was some discussion of you or you and your son doing some new stories. Did that ever come to fruition or was that not? That's not even accurate. No, nothing like that ever happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things out on the internet that... Oh, know. yeah. <laughs> I think almost everything on the internet is that. <laughs> I, I also uh, read something that your ex-wife said that she thought that after she stopped co-writing it, that it suffered a lot and became a less interesting, less feminist character. Did you see where it went in any different direction after she left drawing the series? Did you all have conversations about that? No, no conversations about it. And I think it definitely went down in quality. The art suffered. They had a a bunch of guys on it who would later be terrific comic talents, but who were, you know, they were using it as a tryout book. Mm. And first was kind of indifferent to it in the beginning. And my only help was that Ricardo Villagran stayed on for inking it. I think one of the editors kept fighting with me about it. They kept changing editors. That's always a bad sign when they keep changing mm-hmm. editors. It only ran 12 issues. I think I had five editors. 
So, yeah, it was difficult to maintain the quality. As far as, you know, feminist angle, I, I never saw it as a feminist comic anyway. I see. So you guys just had a difference. Of, well, you probably had differences of opinions on, on a lot of things. That's Almost why you, everything. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I know she was involved in something called Robotech Defenders and did some Winnie the Pooh word books. She was primarily an artist. So did you contribute to any of the things, other projects that she was working on when y'all were married? I wrote the Winnie the Pooh books and I remember the Robotech job, but I wasn't involved with it. Okay. Mm. I see. So your first two experiences in terms of with Evangeline were were complicated in terms of... (laughs) to say the least. (laughs) And you also started working uh, at Eclipse on Airboy beginning in, what, 1986? Yeah, yeah, 86. Okay, were there any things in between that, or was Airboy the next thing that you did after Evangeline? Yeah, pretty much... The next thing I did was I met Tim Truman, who was working at Eclipse, and he was living, again, not far from me. So I was running into him at, like, local comic shop appearances and stuff like that. Oh, that's awesome. He talked about Eclipse and Cat and Dean. So I began submitting things to their anthology titles, Alien Encounters and Tales of Terror. And early on, Cat in particular, she liked my stuff. So I just happened to be at Tim's when he got the phone call about Airboy because it was in public domain and they thought, well, here's a superhero we can do, an established superheroic thing we can do that we don't have to pay rights for. And when I heard Airboy, I said, can I get on in on this phone call? Because I loved Airboy. I knew him from Starenko's History of the Comics and also Airboy Golden Age issues were relatively cheap. So I actually had a lot of them uh, oh, okay. that I bought in the 70s. Because oh, that's interesting. Airboy sold so well. People don't realize this. Airboy sold on a level with, with Batman and Superman uh, comics. So there were always plenty of them around. They were never scarce. So they were easy to find. So I, I was really familiar with Airboy. And basically, that's how I got the job. I was the only comic writer out there who, who knew who the hell the character was. Tim Truman did the art on what, the first couple of issues? First and, two, and, and, uh, and he was yeah. my editor. He was my editor for like, First 20 issues, maybe. Mm-hmm. And Tom Yates had some involvement, too, didn't he? Was he, he was drawing doing, on it? He was doing the inks. He was doing okay. the inks. And after just a few issues, Dan Woke? Woach? Yeah, I believe it's Woke, yeah. He came on board, and he was the primary artist on the title for the longest run. Now, that was an interesting book. I remember to this day, the letters pages and all the back and forth, and and everybody was angry over that book, but people were reading it. Talk about the format a little bit, because it was unusual. It was a very short every other week when it was first released, and for a cheap price on cheap paper, and you were writing, what, 13-page stories or something like that? 14-page stories, yeah. Book that was coming out, I was reading it at the time. And I remember to this day, the letters pages and all the back and forth and, and everybody was angry over that book, but people were reading it. Talk about the format a little bit, because it was unusual. It was a very short book that was coming out every other week when it was first released. And for a cheap price on cheap paper, and you were writing, what, 13-page stories or 14, something like that? 14-page stories, yeah. 
And you hadn't written that many books, so that probably wasn't as weird to you as it might be to somebody that had been writing for for ten years. But but how did you how did you adapt to that page count and and doing what you were doing? I was running on like hundred and ten percent enthusiasm at that point. I was working as a security guard for a big insurance firm. I worked nights, and whenever I got assigned to the desk, that's when I wrote Airboy. And I just write it out on legal pads. I didn't type. I had a typist that I hired. She worked for like 50 cents a page until I got so busy she quit. She couldn't handle the, <laughs> how, how prolific I was. Because I got this assignment, this like regular comic assignment, I was so excited. I got so far ahead on scripts because, like I said, it was all just enthusiasm. As you said, you know, the 14-page format didn't bother me because, okay, that's, that's what I'm doing now. I think I think Dean wanted to have like five chances to make a first impression. That's why it was a bi-weekly comic. You just get it in everybody's faces as quickly as possible and as much material as possible. But the thing is, it made it a 28-page monthly, in effect. You know, almost immediately, one of the issues about Airboy that was, was odd was that they thought out the Valkyrie character and basically... She wants to sleep with Airboy because he looks like his dad right. that she had a relationship with. <laughs> Was that, Set up you, for a lot of online movies now, actually, yeah. <laughs> how did you how did you deal with that? Well only an eclipse could we have done that story at the time. The idea was that, you know, we wanted to recreate the Airboy from the Golden Age, but of course this was the son of the original Airboy. But we wanted to have that sexual tension between Valkyrie and Airboy. And it's like, okay, well, let's just short circuit it. To Valkyrie, she sees no difference. This guy looks exactly like the guy looked when she went into suspended animation. So why not pick up where she left off, even though it's not the same person? And that quirkiness, well, at the time, you could only get away with in comic books and only get away with at Eclipse. It just fit the company, fit the time period. It certainly creates sexual tension. That's kind of weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's cool. I could get into reading that again. Yeah. (laughs) So in terms of a lot of people, especially in our Facebook group, there's people always saying, why, you know, comic books are too political today, or they're talking about you shouldn't bring in references. And, you know, you've made comments yourself, but Airboy was an incredibly political book as the letter page reflected how was that to do considering that you guys were all coming from very different places with truman in one place cat way over on in another place and you as what you were describing at the time is a barry goldwater style republican it was interesting i had a lot of phone calls with cat that had nothing to do with comics and i can't say we we ever argued we never argued and we really didn't argue but she got really angry with me over the Afghanistan storyline in Airboy because I presented some of the Mujahideen as heroic fighting the Soviets. She was like, well, don't you know what they're about and everything else? Which, okay, it's pretty appreciate of Kat. But it's like, yeah, I know they're not all good guys, you know, but, <laughs> but, but they're, like, they're like pirates, you know? We know pirates yeah, are pirates. nice people, point. but we romanticize them. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's almost like Barbary pirates on land, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm like, okay, you know, I get what you're saying. But she was angry at me because I was presenting them as, you know, and some of them were heroic till the Taliban killed them. So, you know, we had a lot of discussions. And I think 
a lot of the interesting stuff in the book came out of that difference of opinion. I mean, because Kat would talk to me about, you know, being a communist and her mother was a communist and her mother was under investigation by the House of Un-American Activities and, you know, fascinating stuff. But I knew when I wrote that I had to watch out for her sensibility. So if I wanted Skywolf to punch a communist, I wrote that he killed him. And then she would say, oh, well, you can't kill him. I thought, well, can he punch him? Okay. Oh, I see. (laughs) I think she liked arguing with me. Dean, not so much. Dean didn't like being political, you know, and Tim and I never talked politics. I don't know if Tim was even really that aware of my politics. Now, you mentioned her mother. I read somewhere that she helped you with sounding like a German when you were writing some of the stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she helped with German translations and stuff like that and phrasing. You can look stuff up, but you're not going to get German phrasing unless you talk to someone who actually speaks German as a language. But it was funny because she was arguing with me about communism and the oppression of communism in the United States. And she was talking about how her mother was unfairly targeted by the House on American Activities. I oh, said, but, interesting. but I said, but, but your mother was a communist. And she said, yes. I said, well, the house was she unfairly targeted. <laughs> they were looking for communists. And she, and she was a communist. <laughs> she was. A communist. Yeah. Yeah. If it fits the definition. Yeah. That's an interesting thing. <laughs> now, And some of those books, some of the issues when they were taking place in South American countries, I remember one where there was a autograph poster of Ronald Reagan, (laughs) and that got a lot of comments. Were you in any way trying to like downplay that, or you were just going with enjoying everybody being irritated? Well, Tom Yates added that. That was not in the script. (laughs) Tom Yates added that all on his own, which he thought was very funny. I thought it was very funny because in the letters column, people were accusing me of being a communist. The thing is, it was one area where our political Venn diagrams kind of came together was the whole El Salvador Contra thing. Kat and Dean were very, very much opposed to it, any involvement in fighting the regime in El Salvador. And I was basically critical of how we were going about it. So in that area, at least we agreed, yeah, this is kind of screwed up. So, so a lot of the early... Airboy stories take place in Central America because of that. And because of that, you know, we weren't from polar opposite points of view on it, just different perspectives. You know, for my money, we should have just hired, you know, a bunch of Argentines to go up and handle it for us. But (laughs) they have great great artists, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So in terms of Airboy, there were a lot of characters that the Air Maidens and Valkyrie and Skywolf that were side characters, but very interesting and got their own miniseries and things like that. You had a beautiful miniseries with Paul Galassi of Valkyrie and then another one with Brent Anderson that followed it. Were those fun to do as well? Was it fun to get to explore those secondary characters rather than just Airboy? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was I was so into it. I was so immersed in the world of Airboy that, you know, anything they threw at me, I was like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. You know, and by this time, I had quit my job in security and was full-time comic. So I was taken on a tremendous amount of work and I welcomed anything that they, I basically wanted to own Airboy. I wanted to corner the market on Airboy. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't want anybody else to write it at the time. Eclipse didn't want anybody else either. I was the go-to guy, mm-hmm. which you know is where I always try to be when I work. I want to be the go-to guy. That's I want great. to be the guy who answers all your questions and solves all your problems. 
So the reason that I asked the question about the other characters is because I went back and looked at issue 50 and the, the comments that Kat wrote on the page where she said basically that you guys never liked Airboy as a character, that that was the only problem with the series, that you were uncomfortable with him being a boy fighting in the wars and different things. And the very concept was problematic and there just wasn't enough to keep the title going and that she sort of blamed it on the artist. She especially went after Ernie Colon for his slowness. And and did that leave a bad taste in your mouth after a a good relationship in a good number of years? When were you informed that it was going to be canceled? I kind of reached critical mass in my relationship with Kat. Just a lot of stuff was happening. I mean, I agreed with her that, you know, Ernie Cologne wasn't really the right choice for that particular series. In fact, Dean and I ran into uh, Dave Gibbons as he was finishing Watchmen. Oh, wow. (laughs) And we talked him into doing that arc on Airboy. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, that fell apart. But he was very interested in doing it. That fell apart, and we ended up with Ernie as like a last-minute replacement. And then Cat was getting more and more steamed at Ernie for, for his lateness. And then she got really steamed at me because he bribed me with some artwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's basically trying to make up for being late by sending me artwork, original art. In fact, he sent original art to other people at Eclipse trying to like apologize for being, being late. But I think he was working on damage control at Marvel at the same time. He was just overworked. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I love Ernie's stuff, but he wasn't right for that arc. I don't know why they chose him. Uh, there were other people they could have picked. You know, and I didn't pick him, so there's no reason to blame me. And I don't know about Kat's uncomfortableness. I mean, she maybe jumped through some hoops. There's that story with the uh, hot air balloons that she practically forced me to write. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. There was, there was some guy who wrote some hippy-dippy airboy story, and she wanted me to help him with it. And I said, you know, why should I help train my replacement? Plus, I thought the story was stupid. So I didn't. I refused to have anything to do with it. You know, so, we're doing a, a lot of crossovers, too. Some of, I mean, like things yeah. like Airboy and Radioactive Hamsters. Yeah, yeah. They were basically, they turned Airboy into a crossover horror. They were just sticking him in everything as the book was doing so well. And, you know, continued to do well. But, you know, they canceled it. I mean, I didn't know they canceled it. I wrote a whole bunch of Skywolf backups. And one of them, one of them was drawn. It appears in the final volume of IDW's reprints, the pencils, for the Skywall story that never appeared. And you guys had a notion of doing a, uh, a Cuba story, too, didn't you? That, that never was got it, to- yeah. I mean, I wanted to show the story where Skywolf often references that he's the guy who killed Che Guevara, and I wanted to tell that story. And the first episode of it is in the final IDW volume in pencil form. And yeah, that was the next thing. I, I wrote all five of those backup stories. And the only reason I didn't write the Airboy lead was that Kat said she, she was still thinking about what she wanted from it. And, and there was discussions of Airboy showing up in South Africa and apartheid was still on. And I was fine with that. And in fact, you know, I, I finally did Airboy issue 51 through It's Alive comics recently. Just a couple more things, and then I'll turn you over to Alec. The Airboy universe sort of wasn't the only thing that you did at Eclipse. You also did, your creation was Strike. Was that yours? I know yeah, you, you wrote it. 
Yeah, Tom Lyle and I created it together. That would have been the first you worked with him? No, he he was uh, one of my Skywolf backup artists. I ran oh, into I him at a comic show in Baltimore, and uh, I loved his stuff and invited him on to do Skywolf. And he did, I don't know, maybe 10 Skywolf backups before we did Strike. You've had a long relationship with him. Yeah, yeah, all through Robin and, and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And Strike was a, a very different, but it was another young, you're pretty much doing young heroes at this point, but he was an African-American hero that gets a uh, belt, power belt, right? Yeah, sort of a, a belt that allows him to turn into like, you know, a Captain America type character. So he's a bit more of a superhero than a lot of your other works and that he does have superpowers. Yeah, well, Eclipse was looking for superheroes because, you know, that's the game. That was what was selling. I always said my, my only problem with creating a new superhero is they don't have the advantage of having that golden age legacy. Uh, so, but this one did. We, well, yeah, we invented a golden age legacy for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I worked very hard on essays convincing people that there actually were Sergeant Strike comics in the 40s. It, it's kind of like uh, Steel and Commander Steel at DC Comics, but it predates that, doesn't it? Or does it? It may be contemporary with that. I'm not sure. The Don Heck series of that time. And then outside of Eclipse and Kamiko and First, you also did a three-issue adaptation of The Hobbit. This would be like 1988, 89, something like that, with David Winslow. I have that to this day. I own those issues. I uh, bought them at the time. And you really stuck to Tolkien. You used his language uh, consistently on that as much as you could. Were you a big Tolkien fan? Yeah, I read the books and I liked them. And basically, Dean approached me. Dean found a public domain version of The Hobbit. He found an original manuscript that had never been published. And he sent me Xeroxes of it and said, start working from this. Mm. And I'm going to try to get the rights from the Tolkien estate, which eventually he did. He, he said, look, we're doing this with you or without you. You can be on board, make it authorized, or not get any money at all. So, That's <laughs> so that, that was Dean. Dean. Dean is so awesome. He's, mm-hmm. he's the greatest guerrilla marketer uh, that comics has ever seen. He put me to work on it. I tried to, to hew as closely to Tolkien as possible. I tried to use only his language whenever I could. I, I didn't invent dialogue or, or any of the rest. And it was hard because I had to trim so much. I had to leave out Bjorn, who's my favorite Tolkien character, because there's simply no room in the story for him. And so I had to... Oh, so good, too. Yeah, Yeah. and so I had to cruelly cut to make it work as a comic book. But then my editor, Sean Deming, went and he added more text, which I didn't really think was necessary. He covered up a lot of artwork. I think there's too much text in those adaptations. But I worked so hard to trim it down as much as possible and still keep the feel. Do people still come up to you at conventions and talk about that? Is that something that... that... It's my biggest seller ever. I mean, I don't have anything that comes close to how much that is sold worldwide. It's it's pretty incredible. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And that was published by Eclipse? Yeah, that was published by Eclipse initially. And then when Eclipse went out of business, it continued on with, I think, Harcourt maybe. And ended up, I believe, with Del Rey eventually. I'm not, I'm not sure. But the beauty of it was, is the contract I signed with Dean, thank you, thank you, Dean, had a clause in it that no matter who took the property on, 
they had to honor my initial contract with Eclipse. Oh, great. That's awesome. Yeah. You still get money for that? Twice a year. I had to sick a lawyer on them, but they finally ponied up. So twice a year, yeah. Oh, that's great. Because out of that early stuff that you did, that's probably the thing that still produces some money. Oh, yeah. I can't imagine the rest of it does. It's Yeah, it's never out of print. It's anywhere in the world. I mean, I mean, a couple of years ago, the check was bigger than usual because it was the number one graphic novel in Korea over the Christmas season. <laughs> that's oh, great. That's I, love, I love how random and awesome that is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, yeah, believe me, I love it too. <laughs> and you're talking uh, South Korea, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't think North Korea pays royalties. <laughs> it's probably big there too, but I'll never know. <laughs> And that was it for me, Alex. All right. Now tell us about encountering Larry Hama in your gateway into Marvel Comics. Like, what year was that? That would be 86, too. 86 was a big year for me. I'd gotten to know uh, Hillary Barta, comic artist and cartoonist, by visiting Chicago a lot. I ran into Hillary a lot. I was talking on the phone one time, and he told me that Larry Hama at Marvel was starting up Savage Tales again. But instead of being a Conan comic, it was going to be an anthology with like war and Western stories. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is right in my wheelhouse. I love this stuff. So it was like a reincarnation of two-fisted tales from EC. So I said, man, I got to get on that. And he goes, well, give him a call, right? And he says, but he says, but when you give him a call, just be aware that Larry can be a bit of a bastard. (laughs) Okay, Uh uh-huh. Which Larry, I don't think Larry will deny. And I'm not telling tales out of school here. So I call Larry and I'm sort of, armed for a bear. You know, I'm just ready yeah. for confrontation. Yeah, you're ready to tackle, yeah. Yeah, you know, and I'm not usually that way. And so he tells me about it, and he doesn't know who the hell I am and doesn't care. And I said, well, and I said, Larry, it sounds like you need me. And he's like, I need you? Yeah. Who the hell are you? I, well, why would I need you? And I said, well, most comic writers don't know which end of a gun the bullets come out of. Yes. And I said, I'll do the homework. I said, I love this stuff. And he's like, so he says, "Uh, yeah, you're right. He goes, well, send me some of your stuff and I'll see if I need you. Yeah. And that that probably spoke to him because he, he, he's a gun owner. He knows ammunition. He's serving in the military. So you're probably talking his language there. Very much comfortable with a lot of stuff that, you know, and conversant with stuff that he was interested in. And he was always a creator that I liked. So, you know, when you see a, a creator as a writer and an artist and an editor do stuff you like, I mean, you assume there's some sort of rapport. If you're doing stuff I like, then we like the same things, right? Yeah. Which was true. So I sent him about 10 plot lines and he bought like half of them and then assigned John Severn to do the Western ones, which I could have died happy right then and there. Mm -hmm. Did you meet John Severn? No, I talked to him one time on the phone. He had a reference question. I Uh never got to meet him, unfortunately. I tried. There was a San Diego con that he was supposed to be at, but I don't think he actually attended I gotcha. And is there a reason why you like kind of that street level kind of Western crime war, even barbarian stuff versus superhero, you know, things like what, what is it about that, that you find appealing? Is it the gritty realism of it? Is that something you're into? Yeah, I think that, and I I can't really relate to saving the whole world or saving the whole universe. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not an ambition. <laughs> I ever yeah. aspired to. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, that, so, so you feel like survival, brutal survival. There's something maybe as far as the way you're looking at it, it just feels more honest in a way. 
Yeah, or a problem that's right in front of you or an everyday difficulty. I mean, that's what made Spider-Man work for me when I first started reading it. He had all these everyday problems he had to succumb, even though he was Spider-Man. You know, yeah. it's like, but it didn't matter because Peter Parker's life was such a mess. And, and you know, I mean, everybody can relate to that. And obviously that was the key to Marvel's success was, was that take. And I always was more attracted to that kind of character. Yeah, that makes sense. Were you familiar with any of Larry Hama's G.I. Joe stuff when you had oh, chatted yeah. with him? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I knew I knew about G.I. Joe and I knew, you know, previously work he had done. I knew he was a guy I would follow. Like if I saw his name on a book, I would buy it because I knew at some point it's, it's honest. It's grounded in reality at some point. I see. You know, even G.I. Joe is fantastical as it is. It's, it's grounded in that, you know, loyalty the Joes have for each other and that, that kinship, that brotherhood. Yeah. Yeah, that is great. I, I love that stuff as well. Then tell us how you got more deeper into Marvel through that relationship with Larry and then your eventual meeting with Carl Potts on working with more Marvel street-level characters. Give us that segue. Once I proved I was reliable to Larry, that was a guy who handed in things when he said he was going to hand them in. And um, as Larry said, your characters were likable, your stories made sense, and you handed them in on time. So he went around to other editors recommending them. Oh, but okay. I wasn't the kind of guy most of the editors wanted. I never got into the mainstream Marvel clique with the superhero guys. And, and at that time, a lot of the books were written by editors. They were basically doing a round robin. You know, That's I'll edit your book, you edit mine kind of thing. So it was, it was harder to get in. So I really didn't get anywhere with Larry's <laughs> recommendation, unfortunately. But Larry was giving me lots of work. And I was getting lots of work, still working at Eclipse. So I was busy. Uh-huh. And then how did you end up meeting with uh, Carl Potts? Well, that was through Archie Goodwin. Archie go. Goodwin was editing Alien Legion at the time, and they were looking for a new writer. I don't know what reason. They weren't happy with the other writer, but they were looking for somebody new, and Archie suggested me. And Archie's a guy who I had been talking with for years. I would see him at conventions, and we would talk a lot. And I actually went up, and he interviewed me a couple of times, looked over my you know miserable offerings, you know, <laughs> plotline stuff but he was always so generous and so gracious and you know i think he genuinely liked talking to me you know i got that sense and he liked my airboy stuff a lot so he suggested me to carl and carl was you know reticent at first i would be too he owned the property why hand it over to this newbie but he was happy with the results you know and, and we became friends i mean i'm still astonished at how hands-off he was uh, because he let me go wherever i wanted to go with him Mm-hmm. And and you found yourself putting a lot of your war script experience, your war story experience into Alien Legion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a military comic. It's a war comic. So, you know, as, as crazy as the events are. And then I was able to visit every science fiction trope because I was a big science fiction reader. So you already like science fiction, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I was able to think of like, you know, wacky situations to put them in. Uh huh. So then, as far as Archie Goodwin, so it sounds like you had already established a rapport. He was following your Airboy stuff, and through that, recommended you to Carl. And then it sounds like Carl enjoyed your stuff. So then, right. is that then he was editing Moon Knight? I think right. so. Then, but then he kind of asked you if you wanted to write for Moon Knight also. Yeah, he asked me if I wanted to take on Moon Knight, and his idea was is that we lean into the Mark Spector persona, the mercenary persona, and kind of leave the schizophrenic character behind and just concentrate on he's an ex-mercenary, which I was a big fan of the movie Dogs of War, which if you watch the movie and read the run, you can see a lot of that in it. 
So I was like, yeah. And, you know, just sort of went at it whole hog. Gave me Sal Valuto to work with, tremendous artist. Uh-huh. And, and I got to work with Russ Heath for the first time. So, yeah, that was a great run. And, you know, again, Carl was very hands-off on the mm-hmm. book. Have you met Russ Heath then? Yeah, a number of times. I spent a lot of time with Russ over the years. Tell us about Russ a little bit. The first time I had to call him, you're a comic fan, you get in the business, and there's all these guys you idolize. You never dream you're ever going to get to work with. Well, yeah. I get to work with Russ. Russ has a couple of research questions that I've got to talk to him about. It took me three days to work up the nerve to call him. And <laughs> Russ never did you any favors on that end. You know, he was a bit of a ball buster. So every time I met Russ from then on, for the next 20 years, he always acted like he didn't know who I was, mm-hmm. even though we worked together quite a bit. So I don't know if he didn't actually didn't remember me because he had no respect for comic writers or <laughs> or he just was fooling with me. But we spent a lot of time together. There was a point where he came to Tampa for a convention. We literally spent every waking moment of three days together because he wanted uh, me to help him write his autobiography. Uh-huh. And so we spent a lot of time talking about his life. Oh, wow. That's great. Very little of it had to do anything to do with comics. Uh-huh. <laughs> How fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Russ yeah, is a yeah. Russ is a character, and boy, what an artist! I mean, just probably my favorite comic artist of all time. Oh, that's great! That's yeah. great. So then, tell us about how you got into doing uh, the Punisher because you were you were doing well with Moon Knight, and I notice in a lot of your writing, like what the character is thinking is in caption boxes, right? Instead of a uh, dialogue thought balloons, right. right? Is that by design where you specify that in the script, or do they do that later, like? And what's the draw of doing it in caption boxes versus a thought balloon? In the caption boxes, they're narrating a story after it's happened, as opposed to thinking about it as it's happening. And uh-huh. thought balloons were kind of becoming passe by yeah. the anyway. So I like being able to have the inner thoughts of the characters. But what I like most of all, especially with The Punisher, was using the narration captions as a juxtaposition for what was happening. So Frank would say something pretty innocuous and then you would see in the panel how horrific the situation really was and that was the source of the humor because frank's never trying to be funny but right. he's one of the funniest characters in the marvel universe if he's written correctly yes yeah yeah, and that's true i mean i, I like a lot of the frank castle kind of one-liners there's an xbox punisher game which everyone should play from 2001 or so and the one-liners in there are perfect it feels like you wrote that video game honestly the first time I met Darwin Cook, he says, you wrote my favorite comic line of all time, and it's from The Punisher. And I said, well, what was it? He goes, I'll have to do the Joker hands-on. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed your Punisher War Journal, or your, yeah, the Punisher graphic novel, actually. Punisher Kingdom, Gone, with uh, Jorge Zafino. Yeah. And just such interesting art with your, with your writing style. Was that a fun project to work on? Is graphic novel structure, do you think about that differently than a serial comic? Yeah, it's kind of like a feature film. You know, that's the approach. You get into one big story. And I had practice because I was on Savage Sword of Conan. Those are 50-page stories every month. So the graphic novel format wasn't that hard to, to ease into. But working with Jorge on The Punisher was a dream because, you know, we had done Winter World together. Zafino was kind of white hot there for a while. And... I kept trying to educate everybody. This guy's not a monthly comic guy. This is this guy's a special projects kind of guy. Yeah, he, that's he, a good he wasn't fast. He's not yeah. fast. Oh, I see. Just because at, at out of speed, also. But his his uh, art style is not like your typical Marvel comic either. 
No, no, your average X-Men fan, they weren't into Jorge Zafino. Jorge Zafino was an artist artist. He's the only guy that I work with that artists always have questions about. You know, what was he like? How did he work? That kind of yeah. thing. They're fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating guy for sure. And I think more as an adult, like I appreciate what I see from him more than when I was like a teenager reading that stuff. It's like when I was a kid and you'd see Alex Toth and it was like, eh. and then as I got older, I went, oh my God, this guy's a genius. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. I feel the same way about that. Okay, so your Punisher, you were really hitting it out of the park with the criminal element. And then DC Comics editor, Denny O'Neill noticed your stuff. So tell us about interacting with Denny O'Neill and then getting into DC Comics. Tom Lyle called me and said that Denny O'Neill, because Tom was working at DC at the time, uh, he said, Denny O'Neill talked to me and he said, he wants to know if you'd be interested in writing a Robin miniseries. Uh-huh. And uh, he said, he saw your Airboy work and he likes how you write young characters. And I'm like, you know, I'll come up and meet with him. So uh-huh. Tom and I took the train up. We were both living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at the time. So we took the train up to New York and I had a meeting and I had met Denny before, sort of. Because Denny is a real shy guy. And mm. sometimes that shyness comes off <laughs> as rudeness. Yeah. And the only time I'd ever really interviewed with him, he didn't even participate in the interview. I don't even think he looked at me. He let uh, his assistant at the time, Dan Raspler, handle the interview. So I'm going up to talk about this Robin thing thinking, you know, well, where's this going to go? You know, this guy wouldn't give me the time of day before. So I went up and I t- met with them and, and everything was great. But I said, you know, look, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not that into Robin, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he explained to me why they were bringing Robin back. And he explained why Robin was important, you know, and sort yeah. of sold me on it. I mean, normally the editor would go, well, you're not that into it. We'll get somebody else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but he was committed. You know, he really liked what I wrote. So we did a lot of back and forth. And he convinced me that I actually loved Robin which I did, you know, because I realized that all my favorite Batman stories growing up were actually Robin centric. Yeah. So, you know, I I was like the usual, you know, like the ignorant adult fan who thought Batman was better off being a loner, which is not true at all. Yeah. That's, that's, that's fascinating. And, and and I'm kind of divided on that. I like both aspects. I'm not sure what I like more to be clear to the fans. This was Tim Drake, Robin as well. So did that add anything more interesting for you to be able to pioneer new material for that character? Well, I mean, I had been following Alan Grant's work, so I was conversant with the Tim Drake character, and Alan was kind of building the character. So I just sort of took off from there, and then Denny's proviso was, you know, we want him as far away from Jason Todd as possible because Jason Todd was such a failure that we were never able to work out why Jason Todd failed. He kind of got away from us. Mm -hmm. So we want this guy as different from Jason Todd as possible, so I kept that in mind, and even more than Alan, I made Tim Drake sort of a reluctant Robin. The template in my mind was that this was a boy wonder who would call 911 if he knew he couldn't handle the situation, mm-hmm. you know, which he never did. But, you know, in his mind, I'm just going to watch these guys. And when things start going wrong, I'm going to call 911 instead of, you know, jumping in and trying to beat them all up. <laughs> so, and then he was more tech oriented and he had a secret identity. Yeah. Which, yeah. which made it a lot more interesting for me. Yeah, interesting. And so then, did you feel pretty comfortable with Gotham City as you entered it like that? I sort of felt my way through the first three-issue arc I did on Batman with Tom Lyle after the Rob miniseries. I told Danny O'Neill, I, I don't know if I have that many Batman stories in me. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Which is, that's fascinating, yeah. 
hundreds of, of them though. Yeah. 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 Literally. Uh, so I did eventually get more comfortable with it as I realized that everybody has their own vision of Gotham city and just have to sort of run with it. That's really interesting. It sounds like Airboy was really important because you then connected through both Marvel and DC through very important people, Archie Goodwin and Denny O'Neill. So yeah. th- this is a fascinating way to kind of get into both companies and through those guys who who obviously loved what you were doing with it. And then the Tim Drake series was really successful. There were yeah. a couple sequels. There was Joker's Wild, Cry of the Huntress in 1992. And at this point, was it a different environment uh, creatively working at this point with Denny and the Gotham City stories as compared to like Marvel with Potts and doing Punisher? And did they have more input in what you were doing? Did you have less freedom? Tell us about that. Well, there's two kinds of editors. There's the kind of editor who hires you because they like what you do and they trust you and they let you run off and do it. And then there's the editor who wants to be over your shoulder all the time. And then there's Don Daly, who was my Punisher editor. He's the third kind of editor. But Denny was the hands-off. He was the, I hired you. I like your stuff. I think you're competent. We're going to see what you do. You know, and there were only a couple of times that he didn't like what I did. And one time he was mistaken (laughs) because it was a change the artist made. But there were only two times I heard from him that he didn't like what I did. But, and that's, you know, 11 years. (laughs) And then Don Daly was the challenging editor. You know, I want a three-page story. I want a two-page story. Uh, I want you to describe the opening of a story to me right now on the phone. And all that was fun. I loved that. That was I great. But so just you, a so different you, kind of guy. So you just kind of look at each one as its own challenge and as its own interesting task. And Yeah. Um, but, I mean, Denny gave me a tremendous opportunity, obviously, and just let me fly on, yeah. on so many projects. Yeah. That's a legendary run. I mean, the 90s and Batman, that's Chuck Dixon. Really, and uh, I think I, I think a lot of people know that. I kind of own the '90s Batman. You own '90s Batman, yeah, and that's interesting because '90s was huge for Batman. Obviously, there was all those graphic novels, and then all that the movies that you were there in the middle of all that. You were the think tank for yeah. a lot of content that has been manufactured into various media, and that's really fascinating to me. So, did you bring any elements of Punisher into Batman? And and is it weird? writing for one character that kills criminals with a gun and then another one that devoutly won't do that? Yeah, you just sort of have to get your head around it. I mean, I have more of an affinity for Frank Castle than I do Batman. Uh-huh. But you just sort of have to, you know, put the Batman hat on, you know, and like, what, what's his point of view? What's he want? What's yeah. he looking for? His background. When I wrote Batman and Punisher meeting, I kind of had Joker describe the difference between the two characters you know, as he psychoanalyzes them. And uh, <laughs> Batman's traumas from when, when he was a child, so he reacts as a child would. Punisher's traumas from when he was an adult, so he acts as an adult would. But no, I mean, I wrote some really impassioned anti-gun screeds for Batman, you know, yeah. and I'm an NRA member. Yeah, but yeah, the, right, right. That's honest to the character. That's, all, I'm not, that's my argument with a lot of comic books today is that they kind of morph the character into the writer's own point of view. And I'm like, oh, that's wrong. I see. And you were, you were honest to the character and that's for sure. And that's a great observation about Batman and Punisher and when their trauma happened and then how they react to that trauma. That's really great uh, because Batman is like a little boy. He keeps thinking he's eight or whenever he was. Yeah. And Frank is always thinking about losing his wife and kid. 
that's really different than losing your parents. That's really fascinating. Bruce is like, I'm going to dress up in a costume and scare people. Well, that's what a kid would do. That's what a kid would do. Yeah. So I'm going to go out and kill it. Yeah, I'm the Grim Reaper. You guys are going to die. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And as a Vietnam vet too, right? That there's a different vibe there. Tell us about uh, creating uh, Birds of Prey with uh, Jordan Gorfinkel in 1996 because that's a that's a big deal and that's that's been obviously put into various media women getting together kicking ass it's a fun series tell us about that jordan had this crazy idea that black canary and oracle would make a good team for a comic and i'm like nah because black canary just got her recent solo series canceled so the readers don't like her and i don't think oracle could carry a book she never leaves this room you know (laughs) and he kept insisting that there was a chemistry there Finally, he got the green light for a special, and he said, please, I want you to write it. And I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. Uh So six pages in, I realized, wow, Jordan was right. There's a real chemistry. The characters are so different that it makes their relationship interesting. It was his idea, the the gimmick and the the, onset of the series was that they never meet, and that Black Canary literally has no idea who she's working for. I think it's Birds of Prey. 18 or something until they meet and editorial meetings kept pushing for more and more of this material. So we did one shots. I remember that we did a mini series when another mini series got canceled and there was an opening at the printers. <laughs> so they had an opening in the printer schedule for a four issue mini. And Jordan calls me and says, could you hurry up and write a mini series with birds of prey? He yeah. says, I just promised the editorial board we could do it. So eventually we convinced DC to go monthly on it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you like the various media that Birds of Prey has entered into as far as movies, cartoons, all that? What's your feeling of that? I think they missed the boat. They don't understand what it was. They think it's just a bunch of girls getting together and fighting crime or, or you know, they missed that there was a through line to it. There was a theme to Birds of Prey uh-huh. and none of them, none of them got it. I, I remember I, I met Dina Meyer who played Oracle, played Barbara Gordon in the TV show. Yeah. And she said that she worked out with a wheelchair for months preparing for the role and even went to a martial artist and learned how to fight with a quarterstaff from a wheelchair. And when she got to the set, they had a powered wheelchair. <laughs> so all of her training was for nothing. <laughs> and, she, and she said, don't, didn't they read the comic? And I said, no, I don't think they did. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. A little review so that the audience knows as far as your 1990s Batman. So you wrote roughly 70 issues uh, for Nightwing, around 100 issues of Detective Comics from 1992 to 1999, major storylines, Nightfall, No Man's Land. You co-created Bane, a lot of issues with Graham Nolan. Tell us first, like, do you feel like you were having the time of your life at that point? Did you feel like this was great? Or were you like, okay, this is a job and and I just want to do a good job? I never thought I'd ever write Batman. It's something I never aspired to because I thought there's no chance. There's too much competition. Everybody wants to write Batman. So uh-huh. I end up in Batman. You know, I swear to you, every time I wrote the words Batman and Robin, I got a thrill. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. Uh-huh. I'm writing Batman. And I'm getting to work with some of the most awesome talent in comics to do it. And I'm getting to work with my buddy Grant, you know, who's like Batman 101. This guy's like, he should have a PhD in Batman. Uh, yes. He's such a fan and he was so knowledgeable. So it was hog heaven all 11 years. I, I enjoyed and, it and, you, and you guys still uh, still are good friends and still do some things together, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did a series, Joe Frankenstein. And we have a upcoming Expendables Go to Hell graphic novel that uh-huh. we did together. So, yeah. 
Yeah. And you're you're pretty tall, aren't you? Six three. Yeah, six three. Because the thing is, when I see Graham Nolan's picture and he's got these biceps, that guy's Bane. But I saw you guys standing next to each other in a picture. <laughs> I'm like, wait a minute, this guy may be Bane here. So, but now tell us about co-creating Bane. Well, when we started Nightfall, we had a like to be determined villain. Denny said we got to have a new villain. We got to come out of this with a new villain. And it was understood that this new villain would be addicted to Venom, which is the sort of steroid growth hormone, narcotic, whatever the hell Venom is. He be- and, I, and, I, and I saw a lot of those guys at the gym in the 90s, by the way. Yeah, there you go. There you go. And you know, he's a roid rage character, but he was also had to be the intellectual and physical equal of Batman. In other words, a worthy opponent. Because in Denny's mind, Superman had just been killed by a giant space bug, you know, <laughs> that no one remembered. He says, we got to come out of this with a character people remember. Well, that's a tall order. So at our second summit, we filled in the name Doc Toxic, you know, like a working name. And we really didn't have anything about him because we were working our way up to Nightfall. Then we got to the point where we needed to have this guy. We didn't know who he was, what he was about, what he looked like. And we had like a sort of a mini summit in which, you know, Denny opened up as he usually did. Here's what we need to do. And then I had the argument to make this whole Nightfall thing work, to make two years of Batman continuity work, this guy's got to be popular. The breeders have to like this guy or love to hate him. They've got to hook into him. You know, he's got to be carnage. You know, he's got to click. It, that's hard to do. I said, that's really hard to do, you know, because you've got to guess what the readers want. And it's going to take And, and, and I love the South American angle you took on yeah. it. So, then he said, well, if you think it's going to be so damn hard, then you do it. And he basically <laughs> sent me home to create this character. I knew Graham was going to do the initial appearance. So I talked to Graham and I came up with sort of man in the iron mask kind of thing. And then I read somewhere, in, I think Wall Street Journal and in North Korea, you could be sentenced to serve the prison sentence of a relative. And they said there were actually wives and children in prison serving terms for people that they couldn't catch. And I thought, wow, what if someone was a child in prison? And I thought, well, what if you were born in prison? Yeah. Born to a life sentence. What kind of a monster would you be by the time you reached adulthood? That's cool. That's so really like where it yeah. started to take off. And then in talking to Graham, I said, well, let's give him the South American, Central American background. And Graham said, well, what about a luchadora look? And I'm like, sounds good to me. And he was already faxing drawings over to me that day. Yeah, that's right. The Mexican wrestler thing. That's awesome. And then um, Bane, Bane, I got out of the Thessalus. I looked up evil. What's another word for evil? And Bane. And when I called the DC editors, Denny and Scott Peterson, I said, I want to call the guy Bane. Oh, we hate that. Nobody's going to remember that name. It's too short. <laughs> you know? Because remember, this is like the, the image period. You know, every, yeah. every character was Star Slasher. Or, you know, it's, <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's right. That's true. I said, well, just live with it for a few days. And I never heard it again. He was Bane from that point on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And that name sticks. So Bane, did you like the way they, um, the treatment he got from the Batman animated cartoon? Oh, I loved it. I loved it. And the idea of Henry Silva, you know, one of my favorite villain actors doing the voice. I was over the moon. I was really oh, happy. That's awesome. So, so you were happy with how that turned out. That's oh, great. yeah. Oh, yeah. And then No Man's Land, that's gotten a couple adaptations because I think the third uh, Christopher Nolan movie, which had Bane, obviously, threw in, they kind of combined Bane with No Man's Land in that. What did you think of that movie? You know, I liked that they made him a household name. I liked that he was uh, portrayed as an intellect. 
chess player, always one step ahead, but you know, the movie's a mess. <laughs> yeah, well, did you think his voice was kind of weird in that? Yeah, I don't know what they were going for. And I don't know why they would his superpower is he's on painkillers. I mean, I didn't I didn't understand that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really wanted to see, I mean, especially now with CGI effects and all, I wanted to see the venom effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That would have been frightening. You that would have been, been interesting, yeah. Yeah. He was in that with the Arnold Joel Schumacher film. Yeah. That was a little weird, I thought. What was your take on that? He looked great. I mean, the scene where he deadlifts the bat signal off of its thing, that's awesome. But, you know, they just had him as a henchman. I, I remember they told us that he would have no dialogue. Yeah. And I remember going up to D.C. one time and I'm walking down the hall and, and somebody came out all excited. And so they've added dialogue for Bane. <laughs> they, they, they looped in some dialogue for him. I'm like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> now, what would you think of the uh, show Gotham? Because they had a No Man's Land arc at the end. Did you like that? I couldn't watch that show. I mean, a, a Batman show without Batman made no sense to me. I had no desire to see it. And then, boy, that Bane is the worst Bane ever. I mean, he would get kicked out of a con if you came in cosplaying that as Bane. I mean, <laughs> the ridicule. I mean, it got, I mean, what were they thinking? He looked like he looked like from a 1970s Saturday morning cartoon. Yeah, that's true. And I'll say I, it was tough for me. The first two years of Gotham, I kind of powered through. But then by the third season, I got it. It's a what if universe. It's what yeah. if what instead of Batman's presence creating the villains, what if it was the other way around? That's all they basically did. What, once I got my head around that, I was like, all right, I'll finish it. Yeah, I didn't mind it. I actually kind of like the end. Um, yeah, I just right. see it as a further dilution of the DC universe. They do too many different versions of things. Right. You know, whereas at Marvel, there's like one version of Iron Man. One, you know, DC, there's like 16 different versions of every character. Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not unified. I think Archie's like that, too. I mean, every yeah. rendition of Archie, it's like, you know, zombie Archie and all that stuff. Right. All right. So now a couple more questions. You basically were working on seven titles at some point between 93 and 98, like seven titles a month. I mean, does that get confusing? Did you, did you ever mix scripts by accident? I mean, that sounds hard. Well, probably my life outside of writing was more confusing than my life inside writing. No, it was never hard. It was never hard. And because I worked so far ahead of schedule, I was able to immerse myself in one title. Because I read that when John Byrne was doing Fantastic Four, and I forget the other title he was doing simultaneously, writing and drawing, he would work six months on one and six months on the other to create a year's worth of work. And I thought, well, that's not a bad idea. So I worked to get far ahead of schedule on everything so that I could literally spend a month on Detective, spend a month on Nightwing. And then in between, Don Daly would be calling saying, hey, what about this? What about that? You know, and I would jump on a Don Daly thing for a little while. But because I was so far ahead of schedule on everything, I mean, so far that they stopped sending me deadline notices from D.C. because they were irrelevant by the time they got to me. Because I was so far ahead, I was able to accept other assignments. Well, I'm not cheating anybody here. I'm, I'm literally almost a year ahead on this title. Yeah, you're dead. So this, yeah. this graphic novel or this miniseries and fit it in. Yeah, yeah, because you also did stuff for Catwoman, Green Arrow, so a lot of things. So you're very prolific. Then you also did a Batman Spawn story as well. Yeah. And that's it. You know, the crossovers between companies, you know, the 90s was big on that, obviously. Tell us about Batman Spawn. Did you, did you like the Spawn character? I don't see how they mix well, personally. I didn't get Spawn, and neither did either of the other two writers, Doug or Alan. I mean, what happened was we were at a Bat Summit, a Bat Summit, and Denny said there's this we're doing a, two Batman Spawn things. 
One's going to be published by Image. One's going to be published by DC. And he says, I don't want to give the one at DC to one writer. He says, it's not fair because it's going to be a big royalty pair. And so he split it. He, he said, you know, you, the regular Batman writers will write it together. So it was Doug Allen and me. And we determined who would write what by writing our names on a piece of paper. And Jordan Gorfinkel pulled them out of Denny O'Neill's hat because Denny always had this ass kicking fedora that he wore. <laughs> and uh, Doug got the beginning, I got the middle, and Alan got the end. Uh-huh. And then, then we realized that none of us had read Spawn, or if we had, we didn't understand it. And so Doug volunteered to get on the phone with Todd McFarlane. He spent most of an evening on the phone with Todd McFarlane while we were at the summit, and Todd explained Spawn to him. And, uh-huh. and Doug came in the next morning with like this legal pad with all these notes on it, and he explained the character to us so we could proceed. Okay. And if I remember correctly, he and Alan went off and plotted. I didn't have any part in the plotting. Okay. And my only asks were, I, I want to have Batman make fun of Spawn's cape, and I want Spawn, when they're introduced, to say, you can call me Al. And Todd said, fine to both of them. So. There you go. So then, tell us about the Tangent Comics imprint. You did uh, Secret Six in uh, 1997. That was kind of a Dan Jurgens side universe. Tell us about that. I don't know quite what they were doing, but they just, you know, basically laid this thing on me like, you know, here, well, what about this? You know, <laughs> and, 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 and it's Dan. So it was perfectly laid out and perfect, fully realized. I mean, there yeah. wasn't really a whole lot more to think about. Right. And it was just basically a new playground to play in, uh-huh. you know? And so I was like, yeah, you know, I, you know, I like, all the guys, you know, everybody working on it. I wanted to be part of it. So, yeah. Um, Did you like that kind of other universe uh, scenario, kind of what if scenario? Did you have more freedom or was it pretty much you're locked into kind of what Dan Jurgens, you know, parameters he set out? No, no. He, he kind of left it open ended. I mean, obviously it's freeing because, you know, we always work with the illusion of change. I mean, you can't yeah. change everything because these characters have been around forever. Right. They're going to be around for generations after us. So you can't make startling, you know, continuity changes. But but here you could. You could, yeah. you know, kill characters, have them married, have them in different relationships, turn heroes into villains, villains into heroes. I mean, you know, it was wide open. But yeah, it was fully realized, but it, it didn't tell you what to do. I mean, Dan has too much respect for people to micromanage them. That's, a, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, one more question before Jim talks about when you leave DC is that when you mentioned the illusion of change, and writing so many issues for something, you always have to have that in your mind that it's got to return to status quo in some way. Does that affect your enjoyment of the assignment in any sense? No, because I like the challenge of staying within the framework. I, I like that. I mean, I did a, a, a date rape story in Robin in which Ariana, his then girlfriend, is almost date rape but gets away. And then he says, well, I think the story would be more impactful if she actually were raped. And I said, well, first of all, I don't want to portray rape in a comic in any way, no matter how subtle it's shown. And I said, secondly, I don't want that to be part of that character's continuity ongoing. We don't know what's going to happen. Ariana may turn out to be Tim Drake's Lois Lane. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that in her backstory. Mm -hmm. And he agreed with me. He said that that made sense. So, you know, things like that you you had to be aware of. You wanted to leave everything the way you found it. Yeah, that's good. That's interesting. Yeah. And that comes down to the betrayal of the character and all that. Right. Um, and that you have a sacred duty. You're, you're carrying this torch, too, to some degree, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're shepherds. You know, I mean, we're not auteurs, or at least that's the way I see it. You know, if I make it, this is all about me and I'm going to make my mark on this character. We're well, going about it the wrong way. You know, yeah. I like the invisible hand style of writing where, you know, I don't want you to be aware there's someone thinking about this. So I don't want you aware there's someone creating a story for you. Right. Hey, Jim, didn't um, Alan Moore trademark or copyright rape in comics at some point? Like no one's allowed <laughs> to do it except for Alan Moore now. No, no, I, I, I almost wish that was true because then we wouldn't have identity crisis, which I think is the most objectionable uh, one I can imagine. I don't know how you feel about that, but I thought that the rape of uh, Sue Dibney, the murder of Robin's dad, everything about that rubbed me the wrong way. I thought it was one of the worst moves DC's ever made. What do you think, Chuck? Uh, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, yeah, that's the it just gets ugly. I mean, everybody has to remind themselves that the comics superheroes are basically, I'm sorry, they're created for children, you know. And when you go that far with things, it's kind of fetishistic. It gets weird. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Should, you know, I don't mind, you know, as an adult, I'll read a superhero thing. I mean, I love old Captain Marvel comics and stuff like that, and I'll read them and I'll enjoy them. But you know, always remembering these are children's wish fulfillment fantasies and you, you shouldn't mess with that. That's yeah. right. When Darwin Cook did DC, he did New Frontier. If he wanted to do the Parker adaptations, which are brilliant, I love those, but that's fine too. But don't bring them and combine them into the same universe. That's oh. my thought on that. Yeah, that's yeah, I, I, hate, I hate when people talk about gritty comics. It's like, okay, fine, but not with superheroes. Yeah. The superheroes are, you know, on beach towels and lunch boxes and pajamas and you got action figures. I used to use that argument all the time when editors or writers wanted to make massive changes in the characters that I felt were wrong. You know, I, I got in a big argument with a writer once about there should be a vertigo version of Superman and Batman. I said, no, there should never be yeah, an yeah. adult version of Superman and Batman. Yeah, so so comics industry, if you're listening, keep the ball gag out of Superman's mouth. That's all, <laughs> that's all I'm trying to say. That's all we're all saying here. And, and don't have Batman wet in his pants. It's just not good. It's not good. <laughs> all right, Jim, so, go ahead. So, Alex, I was going to do cross-gen next, but I want to ask a few Batman questions sure. as well. We talked about Bane, and I will acknowledge he's probably the big guy that you did, but I feel like we'd get in trouble if we didn't bring up another name, which is uh, Stephanie Brown. Spoiler is also a key character that you did. And so your, your thoughts on, on her and basically her status. Well, she began as a plot device. I mean, she was going to be in one story only. I, you know, the idea being that but how would a supervillain's child rebel? Teenage Rebellion, and her Teenage Rebellion was being a vigilante and basically ruining all of her dad's crimes. And we kind of forgot about her until the letters came in. And a lot of letters came in. Yeah. And it wasn't it wasn't if she's going to be back, it was when. They just thought she was a permanent part of the Gotham City cast. So, you know, we started using her more often, and then I really grew to really like the character. I probably have more affinity for Stephanie Brown than any other character I wrote at DC. She seems alive in my head. She's right. probably my favorite character that you wrote. I like her a lot. I don't know if I worked hard to make her three-dimensional. She just sort of wrote herself. That's interesting. Yeah. Maybe you're uh, summoning a past life. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, it's, it's possible. It's possible. Yeah. Now, my other question is, when you leave a title or leave a character, do you follow what other people do with it? Like, when you were talking <laughs> about The Punisher... 
And I don't always like everything that Garth Ennis does, but I felt like he understood that character. And I wondered, did you read Ennis's run on Punisher? That It's a rare instance that, yeah, I read some of Ennis's run because I'd heard so much about it. And I did like it. He did get the character. And he did something that I should have done and never did. He gave the series a recurring cop character, which I really wish I had done. That was yeah. something that's missing from my run. That one stands out in my mind. Did you read anyone else's works on uh, Bird of Prey? No, not really. Because you know, it goes like, in very like different directions. your kids go off with the, the new dad, you know. only other one i would say would be the ed brubaker's and darwin's catwoman is is, yeah yeah is a real treat also that was great stuff i read everything darwin so yeah one of my favorites the other thing i wanted to to ask about was you did some elseworlds again this comes back to one of my earliest questions with you which were spaghetti westerns you did those justice league westerns i love those and you did that robin annual with just fantastic beretta artwork great stuff that last page on that robin annual is is magnificent but you also did conjurers and that seems so not what I would have expected from you in terms of it's so not grounded and so fantasy oriented. Were these just assignments that you would be given or did you come and say, I want to do another Western superhero as Western book for Elseworlds? The Justice League Western, that was Eddie Braganza came to me with that. And I don't know if it began with Eddie or not. It might've begun with the previous editor. And then I ended up doing it. So that came from them. Conjurers came from me because I mean, the door was open. I mean, editors were asking me to do stuff for them. So I came up with The Conjurers. And yeah, I don't really write about magic all that much. But I like the idea of a DCU where magic worked and science was unknown. Science was something that was looked down upon. What would that world be like? You know, and it would be kind of technologically stunted. And I got to use all these, you know, every single DCU magic character. And the thing that made it for me was getting to use Stanley and his monster and also the the heavy Lovecraft tones of it. Stanley and his monster, Kevin Smith uses that too in his Green Arrow. Oh, okay. Because I love that comic going back and it, 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 it never got any any other use, I think, except for those two. No, Um, everybody forgot about it. (laughs) And then I just want to mention before going to CrossGen, I would also add, I thought your Batgirl year one was a really good, uh, that got people's attention. They enjoyed that, I think, a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was like lightning in a bottle because we had done Robin year one and that was successful. And then Batgirl year one. And Scott Beatty and I enjoyed working together and our talents sort of meshed perfectly for that kind of story. And then the artwork, Marcos Martin, is just absolutely amazing. I can picture those panels. It's It was fantastic looking, just such yeah. a nice looking book. Yeah. Let's go to CrossGen for a little bit. This was, what, around 2002? This and, opportunity and, came, up, came up? And if you can let us know why you left D.C., as you answer that question. Well, I don't think he does necessarily, Alex. I mean, you're still carrying over a little bit at DC while you're moving over to CrossGen, right? I basically gave them six months notice and I kept working. So even while I was at CrossGen, I was still working. I I signed with CrossGen in September, no, actually end of August, 2001. I didn't actually officially start work until March, 2002. 
I see. Let's go ahead. What was the impetus for you looking toward CrossGen as an exit strategy for DC? Well, I really wasn't looking to leave DC, but Denny O'Neill retired. His merry band of assistant editors all went on to other jobs. And so I was with a new editor who was, the kindest thing I can say is indifferent. (laughs) Just indifferent to me personally and my work. But I had the sense that he would love it if I would quit. But he couldn't justify firing me because I was my titles were all doing very well. I had, you know, three titles that were all selling very close together. And I've been told that, you know, Nightwing was basically the bellwether book at DC. That was the book they looked to to see how the whole line was doing. So he couldn't get rid of me. Although I was told by other editors that he did everything he could to try to make that happen. So what he did was he just basically stunted me creatively. I would present ideas and they would just get shot down or, or not considered at all, which just was something I was not used to under, you know, Denny O'Neill and, and Mike Carla and, and, you know, other editors, Chris Duffy, you know, other editors at DC. I was always, my ideas were always welcome, maybe not always greenlit, but always welcome. And I got the idea this guy just didn't want to help me out at all creatively and was trying really hard to lock me into an exclusive contract, which would have further stunted me creatively because DC can literally limit the amount of work can do by having an exclusive contract. That's when I was approached by Crosstown. Yeah, I'm going to make the change. Who approached you? Ron Mars was the initial Ah. who approached me at a con. He brought along Butch Geis, and they basically took me out to lunch at a con and talked me into at least coming down to Florida and seeing what Mark Alessi had to say. Had you worked with Butch before? Yeah, Birds of Prey. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. So you went over there now. At this point, Mark Wade was still writing uh, the stuff for CrossGen, a lot of it? uh, He had quit. I mean, it was understood I was going to be Wade's replacement. I was going to replace Wade. And so did you have to go back and reread all of the the books so far for CrossGen? Because it was a very tight storyline and universe in some ways. Yeah, I was handled. They gave me all the issues. They gave me this huge binder laying out the universe and I, a couple of other binders, none of which I ever even looked at. My first thing was they wanted me to take over Crux, a Wade title. I took it over. I enjoyed it mostly because I got to work with Steve Epting, but it's frankly a book I never quite understood. And Mark Wade wasn't terribly helpful. He basically admitted he, he created it on the way from his apartment to the offices one day. But my main task when I got there was to create a martial arts title set in Asia. (laughs) And that was Way of the Rat. That became Way of the Rat. That was my first run-in with Mark Alessi because he fought me on a lot of the ideas that, you know, made Way of the Rat work. You know, first of all, I'm in an office. I'm right there with my artists. That was all very, very cool. But we would have these meetings, endless meetings. And boy, Hell is going to be an eternal meeting. It's going to be a meeting that never ends. And so many of the meetings would be meaningless. It's like, just let me get to work. I know what I, know what I have to do. You know, in fact, I, I could be telling all of you what to do. <laughs> you know, because these were not comic book people running these meetings. We had no editors, but we still had overseers, I, I would say. You know, you built your own little world within the cross-gen world because the planet Han Jin 
Is that how you say it, Han Jin? Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) That was featured in in three different books you were doing. Yeah. Wrath, and I'm not sure what the other one was, but they all had very different things going on. The only one that was a martial arts book was The Way of the Rat. Is that right? Yeah. You know, Wrath was kind of Conan set in a sort of Roman Empire world. Right. And the other one was Asian-focused too, wasn't it? The Path. The Path was a samurai book. Yeah, the Ron Mars one. Yeah. That's right. You had not done a purely martial arts book before. You hadn't done Richard Dragon yet. Oh, Um, no. But your your Robin series had a lot of martial arts. Green Arrow as well. Oh, yes, that's right. And Green Arrow as well. You also did a spinoff of Ruse was my favorite of the Mark Wade books that he did in that. In fact, that was the only one I was able to read, really. was that's a the, beautiful book. That's a beautiful book. The art's yeah. great. The story was super well-structured. And you did a spinoff on that. What was that about? Archer's Agents was yeah. just basically to, to play around in that Victorian England kind of world. And I think the impetus behind that was mostly Mike Perkins. And I wanted to work together. And this was a way to do that. That's how it started out. And then uh, I kept coming up with storylines. I had another one for Mark. It was a murder mystery set in the Raj in India that gets solved by a Sepoy soldier. And we never got to it. And Mike and I were really in love with that story, but we never got around to doing it. Are you ever going to get to do it? Oh, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I don't know why there aren't tons of these, but I love pirate books. And you got to actually do a pirate book. Talk about that a little bit. Well, when I first met Steve Epting, we sat down because I was supposed to meet with all my artists for the first time and introduce myself. And I love Steve's work prior to this anyway. And we met and I said, I have a 12 issue plan for Crux. And he says, well, what is it? I said, you're going to draw 12 more issues of this and then we're going to do a pirate book. I kept talking about a pirate book and I wasn't getting anywhere with anybody. Nobody would listen to me about the pirate book. And finally, I realized if this is ever going to happen, I just have to make it happen. So I told Steve, this is your last issue of Crux. Here's the script for El Cazador. It's our pirate book. And when you're done with this issue of Crux, start on El Cazador. And I didn't get permission and I didn't tell anybody we were doing it. And Mark Alessi, as he would do was touring through the studios. He looks at what Steve Epting's doing and he goes, well, what issue of Crux is this for? <laughs> and Steve says, it's not for an issue of Crux. It's a new book Chuck and I are working on. <laughs> it's the first time Mark had heard of it. And so Mark appears in my doorway. What the hell are you doing? What is this El Cazador? And he couldn't pronounce the name. I forget what he called it. <laughs> and I said, it's a pirate book. We need a pirate book. Pirates, I said, I feel in my bones that pirates are about to happen. The Pirates of the Caribbean was months and months and months away. I said, pirates are the next big thing. And he says, well, I didn't create this company so you could do what you want to do. And I said, well, yeah, if we were doing what I want to do, Steve would be drawing a cowboy story. <laughs> said, but pirates, we need to do a pirate book. We're the perfect, and we were. We were yeah, the absolutely perfect. perfect company to do a pirate book. And, you know, eventually he had to admit I was right because it was our biggest seller. It was great. That was the other one I really liked besides Ruse. Those were my two favorite cross-gen books. And we killed ourselves on it. I mean, we had books. Steve and I had books of knots. I mean, because we wanted everything right. And I convinced Mark to get us a computer program so we could 
make wireframe models of all the ships so that Steve wouldn't have to, you know, so we could meet a monthly deadline, basically, and still have all the pirate ships and everything in it, period accurate and perfectly presented. So by 2004, what happens? Are you ready to leave? I know CrossGen is crashing down around you, but did you have more stories and more things you wanted to do there, or was it a good time to go? Oh, no, I I was going to keep on going. I had, especially on Way of the Rat, I had this big storyline that I was leading up to. So yeah, I wasn't ready to go. I mean, I was one of the last holdouts. I wasn't there the final days because I went back up to Pennsylvania. But it was a ghost town last time I was there. But yeah, and I was doing work for other companies from CrossGen. So what did they do wrong? What happened to it? Well, it basically comes down to finances. Mark basically ran out of money and had to begin borrowing. And we began borrowing against basically the promise of CrossGen, which just never came true. We were so close to a movie deal on Way of the Rat through DreamWorks. And Paramount, I, I, you know, it's it's it makes me heart sick to think about how close we were. And if that had happened, CrossGen would still be around. I told Mark, I said, it's like we're rowing to shore and we just didn't make it, you know. And there were a lot of decisions made poorly at the beginning. We were way too much of a convention presence. There was way too much emphasis on showing up at conventions with a big booth. That's expensive. Every convention appearance costs us like a million dollars. It was insane. And it does nothing. It doesn't sell one more time. So, yeah, it's promotional, but it doesn't really actually amount to more sales. That's interesting. Because yeah, even Marvel and DC weren't showing up then. I remember how big CrossGen was at the cons during that period. The whole sigil concept. Yeah. Really. Yeah, the, insist- was- the, the insistence on the Uber story really hurt us badly because nobody's going to read every comic. And Mark had the idea that the lowest selling comic represented our diehard fans, the number of diehard fans we had. And we had to appease them. And so you can't win anything appeasing the lowest number of people. We had a meeting where all the writers sat around a table and some of the artists and Mark said, what do you think CrossGen is? And all but one of us was in agreement that we were a genre comic book publisher. That we were the only comic book publisher out there exploring different genres and mark said you're all wrong (laughs) and the thing is that's that's what we were that's what the readers were telling us we were that's why ocasio sold so well it wasn't part of the uber story it was an earnest exploration of a genre without any adornments there were no witches or werewolves in ocasio it was just a straight up pirate story and readers came to expect that when we said we were going to do a martial arts story or we were going to do a story about sorcerers that we were going to really do it. That was the main selling point of the company, and it sounds like they didn't understand that. That's fascinating. Now, in 2004, probably the collapse of CrossGen had something to do with this, but then you did some work again at DC with Richard Dragon and Nightwing, right? Yes. Was it basically like, okay, I don't have regular work at CrossGen anymore. Hey, guys, do you have any work for me? Is that basically it? Yeah, we were freed from our contracts, and it was well known throughout the comic industry that we were suddenly freed from our contracts. And so DC and Marvel people started coming down to Tampa Mm. to recruit, you know, basically grab people they could. Now, I was not a favorite son at either company, so I didn't get, you know, adopted. (laughs) I was was left in the pet store window for the most part. Why why weren't you a favorite Um, at that point? After I left DC, the editor, my main editor, 
basically trashed my reputation. He actually said that he was angry because of the way I left. Mm. Well, I gave them six months notice. And he was angry because I didn't come in and see them before I went to CrossJet. Well, my last meeting scheduled with them was on September 12th, 2001. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, probably <laughs> the worst day. Wow. Eating yeah. Right after 9-11. Gosh. Yes. The day that's after, still not uh, a good excuse. Chuck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, <laughs> you should have tried to come into the city. I had said something in an interview and I was told that I had by Paul Levitz that I had to call and apologize to this editor. And until I apologized to him, I couldn't get work at DC. Mm. And so I called and I said, look, I'm not going to apologize. I stand by what I said in the interview. Now, can I come back to work? And he didn't have the cojones to say no. So I did Richard Dragon. I did Nightwing Year One. And that was pretty much it for a long time. Oh, wow. Okay. And then I was in the wilderness. You know. Yeah, because now you have Devil's Due Publishing, Moonstone Books, right. Bongo Comics, Simpsons at this point. Yeah, Bongo uh, carried me a lot during that period. So that was a, a bread and butter type of job there for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I enjoyed the work and it was challenging, they, but they paid double page rates, you know. Huh. So so they certainly really did help out there. Oh, that's awesome. So you're yeah. able to make a living. And then how long were you doing that for Bongo Comics? Oh, boy. I, I forget when the wheels came off there. They changed editors and me and Sergio Aragones got fired. So at least I was in good company. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You've met and talked with Sergio? Yeah, yeah. I met Sergio in San Diego, Con, mostly because my youngest son is a huge fan. We got to talk quite a bit at one of the San Diego Cons. Actually, that's when I found out that he was fired at the same time I was. So I felt a little better about it. <laughs> Aren't you both 6'3"? He's a big guy. Yeah, I think so. I yeah, think so. gosh. I mean, I'm 6'1". I thought I was tall, but you guys are definitely... So to see you two, that's literally two giants in the comic industry. And I, I, I thought I was literally. tall until I met Adam Baldwin. Have you ever met oh, that guy? Uh-uh. God, he's so tall. It's really? Yeah. Because wow. see, it's Alex, hard to tell this stuff on TV. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're you're six one. Yeah. Wow. Because I'm only six two. Why am I so much taller than you? Well, on the webcam, you mean in person? <laughs> just yeah. When we stand next to each other, I I'm just surprised. There's I only need to one straighten difference. my back. <laughs> I need to straighten my back. I'm at the computer too much. All right. I'm just, so I'm teasing. Now that being said. Let's talk about how tall you are some more. No, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So then in 2006, you worked on Transformers Evolutions miniseries. So it looks like you can basically just kind of do whatever property comes your way. You got to make a living and and you can basically write anything at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, as long as I'm interested in it. I mean, I never say yes to any job. Like I said, I didn't say yes to Robin immediately. I wanted to make sure I could contribute, that it was a good fit. But, you know, I've had jobs where they go, we want you to do this. I said, well, you know, this other guy probably do a better job, you know, than yeah. me. So Transformers, you know, I was only able to do it because it was set in the past and it was kind of not really in Elseworlds, but because I knew how rabid Transformers were. Now, <laughs> they, they are enthusiastic, to say the least. Yeah. So I was very careful on that one, you know, because oh, yeah. I, didn't want, I, I didn't want to do them wrong. I wanted to do something they would like. Yeah, that makes sense. And And we all, you know, we actually... Transformers fans, because I was a kid with Transformers, and I'm part of that. See, we had our own little Jesus Christ resurrection moment when Optimus Prime was killed in the movie, and then he came back. We all cried, and then we all rejoiced. We went through this. So we came out 
rabid fans, and that, that ever since. So that that's true. Okay, Jim, go ahead with uh, Wildstorm. Okay, so in two thousand and seven, you were doing stuff for both. Were you doing stuff for both Wildstorm and for Extreme too? Both of those prints, because you did profit for Extreme. Extreme. What was I doing for Extreme? Profit. Oh, I think that's a lot earlier. Oh, is that earlier? Yeah, that's earlier. Okay. I wasn't sure when that, yeah, that fit 90, into the... Yeah, that's 90s. Oh, and Team 7, that would have been... When was that? Well, Team 7 was in the 90s, and then I came back and did a Team 0 for Wildstorm in the, in the 2000s. I go. see. Okay, that makes sense. And then you were doing Grifter Midnighter. Yeah. Now, let me ask you about that, because you've made comments about you don't like when characters are changed, you know, but you don't have a problem when they're original. Now, Grifter and Midnighter and their relationship, you don't have any objection to that or to writing that as them as a couple, do you? No, because that's how they were written. Right. Right, which I think people miss that it's if you're having to write suddenly Bobby Drake, Iceman is gay or something, that's a different right. thing for you. So it's not that you don't like gay people in terms no, it's of. It's not that I don't like gay people. I don't like my favorite characters changed. Yes. You know, if you were to say, okay, Two Gun Kid is a Mormon, well, no, he's not. <laughs> you know. No, because he's, he's Jewish, which I don't right. understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, Black Black Panther is Dutch now. Well, uh, what? <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Were people surprised that you were doing Grifter Midnight? Or do people get mixed up and think that you have these preconceived prejudices on some things that you don't actually have? Well, I think people were basically, well, the people who care about this kind of nonsense were totally dismissive. Like it didn't happen because it didn't fit the template for me. You know, he would never write a gay character because he hates gay people. Right. You know, it's like, okay, well, if that's what you believe, that's what you believe. And, you know, I thought I did a good job. I, I you know, I wrote uh, that Batman and the Outsiders. There were two lesbian characters and they were established as lesbians. And I thought I wrote some pretty touching scenes for them, you know, that made sense to me. But, you know, I didn't get any attention from the, the right people, which I don't care about their opinion anyway but I didn't get any attention from them because it didn't fit the template. Now, the letters page, did people complain? Did they jump the gun and say, oh, don't let, let him do this? Or it was only no one really paid any attention? Well, back then, there was a lot more pearl clutching about me. I mean, if you Googled my name, homophobia came up, you know, for the first three pages. You know, now uh -huh. it, doesn't, it doesn't anymore. It's just I'm, my name is not attached to homophobia anymore, thank goodness. But, you know, I never made any effort to separate it from it. I got my opinions, you know, judge my work by my work. But, yeah, I, you know, there was a lot of nastiness. A lot of times on the Internet, if you want to find the nastiness, you got to go looking for it. I mean, nobody really cares. Right. But it's there on all sides, you know. Well, it's there on every subject. I mean, you, you post the free kittens to a good home and, you know, Six posts later, you're being called a racist. So, we've had uh, Howard Chaykin on this too, and he. he <laughs> well, there you go. There's a he, light rod. <laughs> he, has, he has he so has opinions on this. He, he doesn't really, you know, you never know what's on his mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so you got connected. You were doing DC stuff, and then you announced that you were officially not employed by DC Comics. Yes. What were the circumstances surrounding that? 
I have no idea what was going on there. They brought me on for Robin to have the return of the spoiler. And then I was up at the DC offices. I stopped in to visit because I was seeing other publishers. Did like a three-day thing in New York where I was going around different book publishers with some projects. I stopped in at DC and um, Dan DiDio just gets this wild hair and decides to offer me Batman the Outsiders. And they're going to ditch the issues that were written by, boy, I, maybe Tony Bedard, I think. They're going to ditch yeah. those issues and just start it over again with me. And I'm like, okay. I literally started writing that day. They like, said, you have an office that nobody's using. <laughs> I started laying stuff out. Everything seemed fine and everybody seemed happy with both Robin and out- Batman the Outsiders. And, and then the micromanaging began. The, can you change this? Can you change that? And then I got introduced to the whole post-production aspect. Because these things were reproduced digitally, they could move things around, something they could never do before with comics. And there was a whole lot of that going on. And I, you know, I put up with it, and I had no problem with it. And rewrites, whatever, yeah, let's do this. And I thought everything was really going well. In fact, I had done a store appearance, signed a whole bunch of Robins, and I really thought, well, I guess I'm back at DC now. And the next day I get the phone call, <laughs> you're, you're out of here, stop working, your services are no longer required. My assistant editor was like fighting Wait, back, back tears here. when she talked to me. Oh no. And I said, well, why did this happen? They were not allowed to tell me. And to this day, I don't know what I did wrong. Wow, what the heck? Yeah. No one's been able to tell you? It- no one has ever told me why I was fired off those books. And the thing is, I, as always, was so far ahead of schedule that they literally left like $30,000 on the table because I was way ahead on those books. I had this whole thing with the moon and the Batman Outsiders and Aquaman lined up. I was dying. Well, I did write it, you know, but it will never be seen. Mm. You could always change the names of the characters and just make some some original thing. Yeah, (laughs) I I do that with a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And were you embroiled in any controversies at the time? Was there something that you were a lightning rod that they were looking to avoid? No, no. They knew everything about me they were going to know. Right. You know, I was a conservative. Yeah. And it's never in my work or I don't think yeah. it's in work. You know, I wasn't up there all the time because, you know, I was living in Florida. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what I did. And there was no Pee Wee Herman movie theater episode? No, no, there was absolutely, you know. None of that and, stuff, and, okay. You know, I don't know. I mean, given some of the staff members at DC during times I was there, that might have been a plus, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I well, for some, there were some real weirdos there. So this would have been, let's see, before the new 52? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, and, I missed it. I dodged that bullet. That's a phrase I was going to use, because that, <laughs> that was a dark time. Oh, All right, so let's talk about a few different projects, and then I want to get a little bit on one other matter. You got hooked up with Dynamite, and you finally, you actually got to do a spaghetti western in all its glory with the man with no name, correct? Uh, Yes. And how was that? Was that fun to do for you? Yeah, once I got the artist I wanted, they were going to have me with the original artist in the series. I said, this guy can't draw horses or hats. Why is he trolling a western? And I said, let me work with Estev Paul. So I, I don't even I don't even remember where I first saw Estev's work, but they were, you know, amenable to hiring. And then I was happy, happy, happy. Who was the first artist? I mean, I'm not asking you to name names to be mean, but I'm Oh, I don't know. I don't know who it was. I don't know his name. But it's just, you know, I said I can't write a Western with this guy. You know, I need somebody that can draw the stuff that is required in a Western. 
Because I know it wasn't Frank Avila doing covers. It, it may be. That were beautiful. I mean, uh, uh, Sergio Cariello did my covers. I, I remember those. There. I remember those as well too. They were they were great. Yeah. Uh, do you wish you had gotten to do more of that? To do more westerns? You haven't gotten to oh. do very many, but they're all. I really enjoy them. It's my favorite genre. Yeah, you because know, I got to a, finally got to a Lone Ranger with Estelle Pauls at Dynamite as well. I mean, yeah, I could write that stuff all day. I mean, I just finished writing a western prose novel, so it's my favorite genre. But in comics, it's not. It's not that popular. That's why. When you see Westerns in comics, they got to throw in zombies or, or something else, you know, to attract a readership. You went to G.I. Joe for IDW. Yeah. All of this seems like it's in your wheelhouse in a way that you've, after leaving D.C., got to do some things that you really like to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I heard IDW was getting the G.I. Joe license, I got a hold of Ted Adams and I said, hey, would you consider me? And he goes, don't worry, you're first on the list after Larry, obviously. So, yeah, I got to do quite a bit and getting to work off of Larry's stuff. That was very, very cool. How, yeah, but I have been able to do a lot of just what I want to do. You know, and with e-comics and crowdfunding and everything else, the gatekeepers are gone. You just do what you feel like doing. Yeah, I want to talk about crowdfunding a little bit. But how long did you work on G.I. Joe? Oh, boy, I think I did like 40 issues of one title and then a bunch of minis. I, I probably did like 60 issues of different G.I. Joe things while I was on it. And Again, did you leave? prolific, getting, you know, just getting into it. And did you leave just because you were ready to leave? I think they changed, they wanted to change direction or something like that, so they canceled all the books and then started them up again later with different people. You know, and I ran into what I always run into, which is, you know, I'm the invisible hand writer, the writer nobody notices, and they would get rid of me and then keep a guy who was quote unquote a fan favorite or gotten some critical acclaim, even though my book sold better. And but I, um, I ran into that all the time. And that's kind of like an ivory tower mentality a little bit. Yeah. And what about expendables and your relationship, working relationship with uh, Sylvester Stallone? Tell us that from beginning to end. Well, that is simply the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. It continues to be a story. I can't believe myself. I did an Expendables comic for Dynamite. It's a prequel comic, prequel to the first film. So they sent me the screenplay and I worked on it. I really, I enjoyed it, you know, but it's kind of weird working on a thing that you've never seen the movie, you know, and it came out. And then a few months later, I get a phone call and a woman says, will you hold for a call from Sylvester Stallone? I'm like, okay. <laughs> so he gets on the phone. And he tells you how much he loved the comic, how much he loved the dialogue, and how I got it. I got what he was going for because he wrote the movie. And he said, would you want to come out here and have a meeting to help me with on rewrites for Expendable 2? So I'm like, yeah. So I went out and nothing really came of it. I mean, I got to meet him, sit in on a production meeting, and throw my ideas out there. And it was cool because he and I were finishing each other's sentences. We immediately had a working relationship. And then, you know, they just simply would, they didn't want me. So they offered me a really low ball figure for rewrites. You know, it would have been like comic book money. And I wanted Hollywood money. So I said, no. Well, the weirdest thing is, is that Sly, he insists I call him Sly. Sly didn't forget me. He kept thinking of me for different things. And he got me a work doing web content for Lionsgate. He got me work doing dialogue on an Expendables video game. 
And then eventually, when he formed his own production company, Balboa Productions, he optioned my novel series, Levon's Trade. And I just, just this past week, got the screenplay for the first episode, which he wrote. So that's moving ahead, and they're working on that. Wow, which, which Sylvester wrote himself? He wrote it himself. Dude, that's cruel. Like, that's awesome. I was flabbergasted. Every time he did an Expendables movie, he would talk to me. He would call me, and we would just like shoot the shit about Expendables. And he said, there's a movie I really want to make called Expendables Go to Hell, but nobody will ever greenlight it. And I said, well, what happens in it? He goes, the Expendables die, and they literally go to hell and fight the devil. <laughs> and they and fight said, the well, devil. nobody's ever going to make that movie. That's crazy. I said, but you know what? That'd be a fantastic comic book. Yeah. And so we talked about it, and things went on. And then it suddenly struck me, Richard Meyer, it's like a crowdfunding king, is the biggest Expendables fan I've ever talked to in my life. So I called Sly. I told him Richard's background. You know, He was a Marine. He was in the Army. He was actually in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he huge Expendables fan. We want to do a comic book. And Sly said, go ahead. Do it. Do whatever you want. And so I called Richard, and I said, Richard, sit down. I want you sitting when I tell you this. And for the first 15 minutes, he didn't understand that I meant the actual Expendables. And when it finally hit him, he's like, oh, my God, you mean the actual, not like the Expendables, the actual Expendables. We'll get to do a comic book of these guys. I'm like, yeah. And then that afternoon, I had the first five pages written. By Friday, we had art from Graham, and we were off to the races. Is Stallone the only one that you have license permission in terms of looking like the characters? or? Yeah, there's only certain ones we have likeness of. When you see the graphic novel, we have the Mel Gibson character in it, but he doesn't quite look like Mel Gibson because we don't have a likeness. We have likeness for the core Expendables, Jason Statham and Jet Li and Dolph and the other guy. I see. Airboy came back. I want to close with, with some of those things. You you did a a couple of issues of Airboy last year, is that right? I did the one, yeah. I did a like a, an issue fifty one that wraps the story up from the Eclipse days. I don't think we made clear when it ended. It left in a cliffhanger, correct? Yeah, yeah. Davy has disappeared. He's basically he and the Heat planted an atomic weapon in Misery's universe. It goes off, and we never see Airboy again. You did a snake on a plane. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> probably that thinking was, that was going to be a big seller that was like a last minute thing from wildstorm literally they decided like a month before the movie was coming out they wanted to have a comic book and i had to turn to scott Beatty. scott Beatty did a lot of writing on that ghost writing because there was just no time and we basically had the right issues one and two simultaneously now, this is the last part that I want to talk about, and it's tricky, but I'm a lawyer, so I'm going to put on my lawyer hat and try to do it. I'm almost mad at you, to be honest, because this is as easy and just as normal an interview as everyone that we do every two weeks. Everything you've talked about sounds like everybody else, and I have tremendous respect for you as a writer. But we know going into this, that we're going to have people that aren't going to be happy that we're doing the interview. We're going to be unhappy that I'm having this conversation with you. There is a no-win aspect to doing this one that's different than virtually anybody else that we've done. And so I'm just getting that out there. And I apologize for it, but you must realize that there's an aspect to this that's different from other people's. And just to throw out one quick aside, is that also... That I love your stuff as well. I would say that I've seen like old interviews with you from the 90s 
that you're very much a proponent for the CBLDF and for freedom of speech in comics. I just want to throw out there that I respect that. Now carry on. <laughs> oh, thank you. And so I just want to make it clear that we're not going to please anybody this way. And so I hope I don't displease you by asking you questions on this. It's not an attack. It's just, is there any directions or statements you made that you, even if you think you were right to make them, you wish you hadn't done it because of the difficulties that have come from that? Not really. No, that was totally the answer I I expected. Yeah. So let me ask you about some of them particularly. (laughs) Okay. But first, I want to draw back to the very first thing I I talked to you about, because I think it's interesting. You sat in the very first comics panel, comics convention. You listened to Alex Toth. Right. And you said that he basically rip the industry a new one for 45 minutes or so. Yeah. When you were listening to him and you were how old? Uh, I was probably 17, 16, 17 years old. What were you thinking while he was talking? Were you going, yep, you're right. Or were you thinking, I like comics as they are. I was like every other fan in the audience. I was aghast because these were fans and fans don't get critical like this. And he didn't talk in specifics. He didn't attack any one creator or comic company, but he did talk about his experiences with editors and restrictions and things like that. And my mind kind of opened up that, yeah, comics could be better. You know, and they were actually on the verge of becoming better. You know, there were some incredible comics done in that period and following it, shortly following. He kind of tapped into the zeitgeist when you're listening to yourself talking and and criticizing certain aspect of current comics or certain creators that are now on titles that have reputations elsewhere and and so forth do you ever hear yourself and think oh my god i'm alex toth now i'm i'm (laughs) (laughs) that the circle has come around from you sitting in that audience to you being that older person complaining about the state of comics today i'll own that i think as you get older you become a bit of a curmudgeon but you know it's not about like the good old days or we did it better or anything like that it's just I see the same mistakes being made now and doubled down on that I've seen the entire time I've been in the business as a professional. My next question is one of the things that you have spoken about is changing characters or introducing characters. I want to make sure that I'm not misquoting you on this. Do you have an issue with the Muslim version of Miss Marvel? Just it's, it's boring. Okay, you don't like the comic. I'm probably the first American comic creator introduced a Muslim character. I had a detective in Nightwing who prayed five times a day to Mecca and, and all around. He had a prayer mat in his office. I mean, and, and I wasn't doing it to be edgy or diverse. I was doing it because I grew up in a city and cities have lots of different people in them. It added an element of, I don't know, interest to the character. So I have no objection to Muslim characters. No, but you got to portray them honestly and interest. And my problem with a lot of these, they're token characters. Let's face it. We're going to do this character because they're Muslim or they're a lesbian or, you know, whatever. And that's as far as you go with it. You don't do anything to make them more interesting than that. Do you read that comic? 
I've read some of it. It just okay. seems uninteresting to me. And a lot of it is just simply the craft is missing in the writing and the artwork. But it, you'd acknowledge it's not written for you. as No, as, no, um, no, a lot of things aren't written for me. I mean, Neil Gaiman doesn't write for me. But right. I recognize that Neil Gaiman is extraordinarily talented. Obviously very popular. But and what, like I have no interest in his work, but I acknowledge that it's good and it's earnest and he you know, likes his audience. She is a popular character in that there's talk of bringing her into the Marvel movie universe and, and so forth. Or do you think that's not because she's popular, but because there's a different agenda? There's a different agenda because if she was popular, her sales would reflect it. Okay. It's like Netflix. Netflix is awesome because it reveals the truth of the universe. Because the people at Netflix can actually see who is watching, how many people are watching. They have basically sidelined every agent in Hollywood because they can go, they're not popular. You know, your client is not popular. And we have the numbers. So you've got to have the numbers. If this Ms. Marvel was a breakout character and a huge hit, I would go, okay, well, that's just the way it is. You know, and I don't get it. I mean, I didn't get the Ninja Turtles, you know. Yeah, I never got it. But, but you got you understood the radioactive hamsters because you you did that book. Well, I eventually understood the turtles. I just understood they weren't for me. I don't know why I didn't understand it because it was right there. They're buddies that live in a sewer and eat pizza all the time and fight crime. I mean, okay, yeah. Why wouldn't kids love that? Turtle power. Turtle power. The, the next one, and there's only a couple of these, but I just the oh, latest Thor was a good seller. We knew it was going to be temporary. And right. Alex, who's resisted to some of this stuff, sometimes read all of that and he enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I liked the entire run by that author going back to the one-armed Thor and, and the different ones and the Jane Foster one. Did you read those or did you just not like the concept of that happening? I didn't read it. I understood it was temporary. I, yeah. I don't know if I was critical of that. I don't okay. know if I was critical. I don't remember being critical of that. I wouldn't know enough to be critical about it. And Miles Morales, who you have criticized, and he's not the same Spider-Man. Did you see Spider-Verse? No, I haven't. I haven't. I just think, like at DC, it's a delusion of a character. It's you're diluting, you're confusing the audience by creating these different entities with the same name. I would say that, and I get that point. The only thing is that like Marvel in the 80s with Iron Man, they had uh, Rhodey, or I think in the early 90s, they had Rhodey also kind of wear the Iron Man suit. Actually, that was 80s and 90s, and then he became War Machine. And I thought that was a lot of fun. And Miles Morales, you know, I, I really recommend watching the movie, not from a perspective of, okay, this person gets representation, it's about time. It's not like that. But right. it's actually really just a fun urban story and that it's just a different universe. and the a spider bit someone else and then the mainstream Peter can meet that Spider-Man and they do have actually some fun interactions. And if you look at it more as like an urban story, I think you'll like it. Yeah. And, and John Stewart also, I mean, not just Rhodey, but at the same time you have John Stewart, which for an entire generation is their green lantern because he was on, on the cartoons. Well, see, uh, Iron Man, I was going to say that Iron Man and Green Lantern, I was going to specifically mention John Stewart, they lend themselves because anybody can be in the Iron Man suit. Anybody can adopt the ring. And that's what—that's the beauty of those two series, is that it doesn't always have to be that guy. But Clark Kent always has to be Superman. And to me, Peter Parker always has to be Spider-Man. I'm just hidebound. 
that way. So tell me about the 2014 op-ed you did in the Wall Street Journal. It was written by myself and the artist Paul Ravoche about uh, a creeping politicization of comics, mostly to the left wing end of things, and how anyone who thought differently was being ostracized out of the business, you know, either being unemployed or underemployed. There seemed to be a real war on any kind of diversity of thought within the comic book community. So did you want diversity or did you want a backtracking to where comics weren't in general political one way or the other? Because you certainly became politicized more so in, in terms of your work rather than less. Well, I don't want diversity of opinion in the comics. You know, I don't want somebody saying, well, we're not, you can't work in comics because you're a Seventh-day Adventist, you know, because of who you are at home. Yeah, I want comics, mainstream superhero comics to be apolitical. I mean, any other comic, you want to produce a political comic, go right ahead. But don't make Superman espouse your beliefs. So, so was Airboy a mistake when you first started doing it? No, because it was kind of wild and woolly, and it presented both sides, because that's the way the creators were. It was a different era. Plus, it wasn't a character most readers were familiar with. We weren't taking, I mean, Airboy was political back in his day. I mean, he killed Nazis, he killed communists. You know, we weren't taking an established character and making them into what we wanted to be. We were continuing what they already were. So did you ever tell Denny O'Neill, man, you screwed up the entire existence of comics with Green Lantern, Green Arrow? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) That's what I wondered. I told him right to his side. Denny and I got along great, you know, and we were always honest with each other. I would absolutely astonish him with things I said. And and I I said, you know, boy, I, I, boy, I hated those comics. I really hated those comics. In fact, when I was on Guy Gardner, I wrote a scene that Kevin Dooley made me take out. And it was a parody of the scene where the black man comes up to Green Lantern and basically admonishes him <laughs> for helping, you know, the purple people and the orange people, wanting to do something to the black people. And I did that exact same scene, and Joe Staten was going to draw it exactly the same way, except Guy Gardner's response is, get a job. <laughs> and they wouldn't, you know, Kevin's like, that's one, that's a step too far. So there's actually something Kevin Dooley would say, don't put in a comic, which is... <laughs> <laughs> Because we talked to him. He's stuffing girls in refrigerators in some of his stuff. He almost made me cry at the comic fest. I mean, I was going to go up and be there when Denny first saw that page. I I wanted to see his face. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let me ask you another question. Do you identify yourself? If people ask, are you part of Comics Gate? Are you sympathetic to, I know it's just a name to some degree. You have defined it in interviews and you've talked about it. What is your relationship with it if you even want to acknowledge that it is a thing? I am the Jesus of Comics Gate. I was the first one to come out and I was all by myself. <laughs> you know, I paid for all their sins for years and years and years. And then others stepped out. Others got ostracized and stepped out. Now, Comics Gate, I see as basically um, a pejorative you know, insulted pejorative to, it's like, it's like neocon, you know, whatever. Social justice warriors, which is also, you know, yeah, whatever. You know, yeah, I agree with you. And I don't really understand what Comicsgate is. I think it's different in the eye of the beholder. And then I see a lot of Comicsgate people are like infighting with one another, which always happens on the right. We, we never get along with each other. 
everybody's got a different opinion about things. And I kind of just, I don't know, stay above it. I just stay out. of. I don't know who's arguing about what or who believes what, you know, I was the first one out there. And do you think it went in directions that you would like, like anything that someone starts or acknowledges, are there aspects of it that you don't agree with? And people that identify themselves that way that you think, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't behave that way, or I think that's unfair, or are you, in general, satisfied with their side of things? Well, it's kind of a libertarian point of view. I mean, they're going to do what they're going to do. I can't really be critical of it. You know, if people did it on the left, if people decided to do left-wing leaning comics self-funded of their own characters, I'd say, God bless you. I'd probably read them. You know, just don't do it with established characters. Go do it on your own. Take the risks that we're all taking. So, yeah, I mean, comics is such a raw medium. You know, write a story and you draw it. You know, it's it's literally words and pencils on paper. It should be freewheeling and crazy and, and everybody just presenting whatever the hell they want to do. That's the way it should be. What about some of the behaviors, though, in terms of online bullying? You guys get it, too. I'm not saying that you certainly have received that kind of treatment, but... Some of the incidents, and I'm not going to go into them, you know the things I'm talking about, but were there anything where you've thought, I should just say to somebody that respects me for starting this, that that's probably not nice to do to people? Yeah, you see, the thing is, I mean, when you say, I probably already know this, I probably don't know it. I mean, it's like somebody coming up to you and saying, did you hear what Debbie said at the mall yesterday? It was like, no, I wasn't at the mall. And I'm not even sure who Debbie is, you know, because the internet is so freaking huge and social media is so freaking huge. But a lot of times I'm way, way, way far from the battlefield and I don't even know what's going on. And when people try to tell me, I'm just like, I'm not even really interested in hearing this. Hmm. So is there a lot of nastiness and sniping on the internet? I mean, big surprise. I mean, all you can do is, is massage your own experience by you know, blocking people or limiting people's access. You know, I don't go on the internet fight with people all the time because what's the point? Like, I have work to do. Now, one thing I want to just kind of throw out there, and then Jim Jim will resume his thing, is that we've had, you know, guys like Don McGregor, Howard Chaikin, and they're very much on the left, as you are on the right. But they speak their minds, and they definitely feel ostracized from the modern comics industry as well, for their own reasons. So they don't really fit that template of not being in it because of their political preference. To me, it's, and maybe you can speak more to this, but maybe that's not a thing. Maybe it's more an age discrimination sort of problem, or maybe the younger generation just doesn't know some of these older guys, so they don't know. So they're just like, well, that's not the hot new thing right now. So maybe it's something more like that. Well, you're right, because I've learned over the years that Politics is part of it, but it's not all of it. That there's definitely clicks. I mean, until Dan DeVito left DC, you had the two major comic book companies were run by the guys who hung out at the same comic book shop when they were teenagers. You know, so they were a click. Marvel and DC were part of the same click. And yeah, I realized years later that it wasn't just my politics, because a lot of them didn't care about politics. They just had politics that they had learned and they knew and were comfortable with. They knew all they needed to know, in their opinion. But, you know, if you didn't like the same music they liked or the same movie they liked. I mean, I remember at once at D.C., I was slightly critical of a movie that an editor liked. And the guy just blew up because I didn't. And I didn't. I said, well, I like the movie. I just don't like it as much as you do. And the guy just wouldn't let it go. 
So it's more than that. And yeah, Don McGregor and Howard Chicken, we are not part of this new young clique. But that's no reason why a lot of these guys are underemployed. I mean, this, the yardstick I use is that Jerry Ordway does not have a monthly title, either as a writer or an artist. And in that situation, there is something wrong with the industry. Why would you allow that guy to be unemployed or underemployed in this medium? Oh, and we could name others, too. I mean, some oh, yeah, I just used Jerry as an example. He's an all-round. He's good at both jobs and, and at the peak of his powers. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. I agree. And some of the writers as well, you included, that are consummate craftspeople. And it's frustrating sometimes. And then one last thing I'm just going to just throw there, and then I'm done with the is. Then the other thing is some of it's generational. Like me and Jim, we have really different ideas about what our ideal Superman is. Like he hates John Byrne Superman. I like it. He, you know, he likes kind of the Superman representing something more positive. And, and I get that. I think some of that's generational. The one thing is about Comicsgate that I hear about from friends, and I have friends on both sides of it, but there was some, I forgot who it was, one of them that associates with Comics Gazer says they held up pictures of female editors from Marvel. They were like, uh, it was a picture of like young, like, you know, seven the women. Squad. Squad. Yeah, right. They were like 20 something. And then they held it up to mock. And my, my only thing is that do comics that were originally supposed to be written for 12 to 18 year olds, are they supposed to continue to appease older guys that collected it at the newsstand in their local pharmacies, or should they talk about trying to transmit it to a younger generation? How much of this is generational? And then also using that sort of belittling to then increase crowdfunding. It just seems like there was a bit of a technique that was kind of used to almost take advantage of some of those older dude readers that kind of wanted some of the old days coming back and utilizing some generational sexism to fill their bank accounts. What do you say about that? I believe it's Richard Meyer we're talking about. And I, I, I don't think that it was cynical in any way, because I don't believe that he was into the publishing end of it. He might have been. But there is a huge number of disillusioned or dissatisfied fans who are not served by a lot of the output from the, from the big two who are looking for something to support, something to like. So, yeah, I don't think it was connected to a more. I think it's just Richard. You know, Richard is unguarded. He says what's on his mind. And as to the generational aspect, that's the biggest problem with comics is we lost the generation. When we left the newsstand, there were nowhere for kids to see comics for the first time, except maybe at the public library. Nobody goes into a comic shop cold. Some kid isn't going to go, hey, I want to go into that comic shop. He's got to see them somewhere else first. And there wasn't any place to see them. And as to aging fans, I've been talking about that for years. I mean, we need new blood in the comic book readership every few years. It's just like children's books. You get new readers, new readers coming in all the time. We haven't had that in 20 years, nothing like that in 20 years or more. And so you've got the same guys reading them. I made a joke years ago that eventually you're going to want Superman in a wheelchair, you know, Batman with a walker. And we go, oh, I'll never want that. Yeah, yeah. well, you're going to, when you're in your 70s reading these books, maybe you will. Maybe the only way you'll relate to them is these characters age with you, which is where we get the darker, grittier, grimmer stories, the more cynical stories, you know, and what kid's going to want to read that crap? So I guess that goes back to my line of questioning about Ms. Marvel and Miles Morales, that these are for kids of that age. They're young characters and they're, and yes, they have names attached 
because let's face it, if you don't have a name attached, it's it's harder to sell a new comic. It's hard to have static and have it sell, whereas it's easier to have something like Ultimate Spider-Man. And it certainly was successful in that the movie made a ton of money and people saw the movie and now we're going to go and buy. And so it's good for the industry in that respect. I respect your view on that. I want to ask you one final, because Alex brought up somebody, but I want to bring up a a different name, which would be um, Theodore Beale, who has a pre-existing as Vox Day. I think that's a different thing to some degree. You have done or are doing work for him on something that's named Alt-Hero, which with the very name of it is inflammatory to a lot. It's poking. I don't think that's a coincidence that it's named that way. And it does scare maybe not the people that are going to traffic in in those books anyway. But I just want to ask you about some of that, because things like Daily Stormer as a title, and I mean, these are names that are cause concern, but primarily what has to stand with the people he associates with. And when Vox Day says that blacks are a subspecies and half savages and that we have to secure the existence of white people and a future for white children. Comments like that don't sound like the person I've spent the last hour and a half or so with. <laughs> you know, And I don't believe that. And you didn't say these things. But when you're working for somebody who does say those things, is there anything you want to say in response to that? Well, I did an interview with the Rolling Stone in which they asked these same questions. And I'm like, well, why didn't... I've worked for a lot of different kinds of people and nobody's ever asked me about who I worked with and what their personal opinions were. Nobody asked me who they were at home. And a lot of interest in Vox. I understand Vox is beyond controversial, but he contacted me and basically set up a thing where I could do whatever I wanted. He doesn't tell me what to write. He doesn't tell me what direction to go into. He doesn't touch my work at all. I'm free to do whatever I want, but he's giving me access to a global audience that he didn't otherwise have. And as I said to the Rolling Stone guy, I says, well, what am I supposed to do? I, I don't have your permission to, to work. I need permission from the right people to work. Am I supposed to get a job at Home Depot? I mean... And some of this is probably because ageism may have shifted you toward that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've heard that argument, it's ageism. Well, if it's ageism, it's been happening since I was 47. So, and there's, there's other guys, you know, yeah, there are other guys my age out of work. There's other guys my age still work. I don't even agree with a lot of stuff Fox says. I mean, I'm not politically in line entirely with Vox Day. He's given me the freedom to work. Is it just you got to pay your bills, so you got to work? Is that the deal? Well, and also, it's interesting work. I like to work. I like doing it. It's compulsive at this point. Every writer talks about burnout. It's never been an issue with me. If anything, it's, it's the opposite. And I got to have an outlet for this stuff. Do you write knowing that his brand is all hero? Do you write with the notion of who his readership is? I know you have a character that wraps herself in a Confederate flag. Yeah, but see, I don't write that character. All Hero is one title. I write a comic called Avalon in that universe. Right. And it has a diverse cast. I mean, one of my heroes is, is Filipino. I've got a black cop. I got this. And he doesn't say, don't do that. 
you know, make sure the cast is all white. Like every other urban comic, and it's an urban comic that I've ever done, it represents the real world. Not for diversity as a virtue on its own, but just because that's honest. And he's never once said, don't do that. Or you should go in this direction or that direction. I will say as a lawyer, and only saying this because we're having a good conversation, there are clients who I have handed their money back and said, even though they were money clients, I mean, good money, where I just said, I can't do that. But I never do it just because they voted for or because they you know, say something I don't agree with or they watch a different news channel than me. But there are points where I say, I can't, I can't handle that. And everybody has to make that decision. And I respect what you're saying. Right. And to be perfectly honest, I haven't read a lot of this stuff that they say that Vox, I mean, I've read essays he's written and stuff. I haven't seen the kind of language you're talking about. Nobody's pointed out to me where he said these things. I'm not saying that he didn't say them, but, you know, I, with the dealings with the guy, I, mean, I talk to the guy a lot on the phone. And we've got a good working relationship. And I don't hear this stuff from him. I don't see any reason to part company with him. I don't, I don't have a bad taste in my mouth when I work for him. Okay. The only other thing I would say, because you made the Rolling Stone comment, let me just say that Alex and I always ask people, what was Jim Warren like? Or what was so-and-so like? We do ask about what people think of their employers and what was it like to work with such. So this would have been a question we whether or not controversial or not. We we often often do that. So Sure, sure. No, no. Because so like, no, absolutely. I understand that. You know, you guys so, are curious about that stuff. I mean, you've asked me what a lot of people were like here, and that's, that's fine. But, you know, when the general mainstream media, their only interest, they've never shown any interest in me at all before, now all of a sudden they want to know everything about Box Day. You know, basically, they don't even want to know everything about it. They want to confront me with who they think he is and have me respond to it. I would say that we, we're not fishing for details on... Vox Day, that, uh, we, oh, but no. we want to cover your career. No, no, and, no, no. You know, as as Jim and I discussed on the phone, we wouldn't want to just omit. And we try to be journalists with this. That's why we were very honest with Chaikin's interview and others that we've had. That's where we're coming from. It's historians, so I get it. Yeah, you know, no, I don't mind. I've courted controversy, and I'm willing to stand up to it. And you answered every question I asked you. That's all you can expect of anybody, and I appreciate that. <laughs> Yeah, no pleading the fifth on this podcast, everybody. Uh, Um, uh, Well, Chuck, honestly, I had a great time. I think I could hear from Jim's tone of voice that he had a great time, too. Really, you are a true craftsman at what you do. You get into the universe. You turn in your stories on time way ahead of time. Sounds like more ahead of time than anyone that we've spoken to. If there's one legacy, it's that you're always on time with your assignments. But you're also just a great writer. I love the stuff you've written. I was a fan of yours in my teenage years. And I was all caught up in that 90s Batman zeitgeist myself. So it is nice to uh, speak to the 90s Batman guy, as well as just I've read your stuff since and and before, just because I got curious. You've been so gracious with your time and you you're just so brutally honest and you're really tall. So that's good. So. <laughs> But, uh, but thanks so much that, for joining that's us. That's my takeaway. You're taller than either of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was a pleasure uh, chatting with you. Thanks so much for spending some time with us on the podcast. Certainly. Certainly. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks a lot for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned in a couple weeks for the next episode of the Comic Book Historians podcast with Alex Grant and Jim Thompson. 